Welcome, everybody, to the 17th episode of Sports Cards Live. Very excited for tonight's show. Um, had a bit of a scheduling uh, mix-up, or not a mix-up, but um, Steve Grad, who's the guy from Pawn Stars and the lead authenticator for Beckett Autograph or Beckett, Beckett Authenticating Services, um, had to reschedule. So he'll be on either this coming Wednesday or next Wednesday, uh, the one after. We're going to... We're going to finalize that here in the next few days. So tonight we have two guests joining us, which you probably saw online. I'll get to them shortly. But first, I want to thank the last two guests. Last Saturday, we had Billy Celio, product manager from Upper Deck. Had a great discussion. That, that video is now living in the YouTube channel. So please go watch that if you haven't yet. It's another long one. They're all long guys. So I do recommend that you uh, consume these shows in in chunks or portions, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes at a time, just so you don't get overwhelmed with these two-hour episodes. But these discussions just tend to continue, and uh, and we have some great content. So I don't like to cut it off any earlier than we do. Um, also want to thank Justin for uh, last Wednesday, this past Wednesday, we had an amazing discussion about the state of the hobby and basketball cards and um, his history, uh, the virtual world. So Excuse me. So definitely go watch that one. It also is living on the YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed, please go uh, subscribe to the, the channel. Really appreciate that. This next Wednesday is either going to be Steve Grad, the guy from Pawn Stars, or Ken Reed, who is the co-anchor of Sportsnet. Uh, Got to still talk to these guys and figure out who's going to go first, but we're going to get both of those guys on in the next over the next few Wednesdays. And then next Saturday, June the 13th, is Jeff Wolf, the president of Iconic Auctions, uh, which is the company that recently sold the love letter that Michael Jordan wrote to his girlfriend many years ago before he was married, I believe. So that was a cool story. Jeff will be joining us and we're going to talk about all things auctions and um, the, the, the state of the market, cards, memorabilia. He's got a ton of experience, a uh, ton of cool items have passed through his hands. So we will bring him out on next Saturday. Uh, finally, I just want to call a couple things to your attention. The Virtual Sports Card Expo, June 19th and 20th. I'll bring up the banner right now again for everybody. So sportcardexpo.com. They are releasing information sort of in bits right now, but there is more now than there has been so far. So um, please check that out. I will be participating. Look forward to seeing many of you there that weekend. And also the Center Ice Cardcast, which is a new podcast uh, on all the platforms, including YouTube. Uh, they just released their episode two, and they did a really nice review of the virtual expo with more information than I thought that they would even have access to. So check that out if you want more information on the virtual uh, sports card expo. Check out Center Ice Cardcast on uh, on YouTube. La finally, before we move in, I just want to bring a certain auction that's going on right now to your attention. This is at Leland's. This is the Upper Deck, the Cup, Connor McDavid, um, autographed rookie patch, graded a, a PSA Mint 9, and this is jersey number 97 of 99, so his jersey number. The auction's already at over 50, almost $53,000, and uh, really interested to see where that lands. Uh, that's over in about 13 days, so we'll, we'll visit that again, but if you're not aware of this, because it's not on eBay, it's at lelands.com, uh, auction.lelands.com. Check that out. And uh, interesting to see where this one lands. Uh, the the Centerized Cardcast guys, they predict over 100,000. I'm going to be a little bit more conservative. 
And I'm going to guess that this card will end at about 65 to 70,000 US dollars. Just, just what I'm guessing. Okay. Let's bring out our two guests tonight. I'm just going to find my notes here. All right, guys. So I'm going to bring out Sean Robb and Tim Heacock. And we're going to go to this view here. Actually, I like this one. This one is actually, I think we'll stick with this one, guys. We didn't do this earlier, but I, I like this view. Okay. So beside me right there, right there, we have Sean Robb, guys. So Sean Robb is, uh, he's a, I'm going to read my notes here. He's a derivatives analyst. He's working in the banking industry. And he has some institutional investing experience as well. He's an MBA, 18 years professional experience, and 32 years collecting. Below him and I, we have Tim Heacock, also known as Chili Chow on Hobby Insider, on Instagram, and elsewhere, I'm sure. Tim's an investment advisor at RBC Dominion Securities. He's a certified financial planner. He's insurance licensed with a focus on estate planning, 25-year professional experience, 45 years in the in the hobby. So before we came on, we kind of figured out that between the three of us, we have about 100, I think it was 119 years of collecting experience on the screen right now. That's a pretty big number. So we've been around between all three of us. And um, I think we all bring a few other things to the table, as I just described with these two uh, fine gentlemen. So let's start with you, Sean. First of all, thank you for joining me. Welcome to Sports Cards Live, episode number 17. It's great to have you. How are you doing tonight, my man? Great, thank you. Good, great to have you here. Tim, same thing to you. Thanks for joining. I know you're going to bring a wealth of good information. So, and how was the night for you so far on Saturday? So far, so good. My wife's looking after the kids. Couldn't be better. Okay, that's great. Okay, guys. So we'll start with you, Sean. Um, why don't you just let us know a bit about your collecting history, uh, how you started, what brings you to today, and then we'll do Tim, and then we'll get into the, the content. Great. I was uh, raised as an uh, as an only child, uh, just north of London, Ontario, and um, I had a lot of exposure to uh, some of the OPG employees. Um, they gave gifts uh, of uh, cards to my grandmother and my mother, who um, uh, you know who who gave them to me and and got got me started uh, in the eighty three eighty four OPG set. Um, I then um, I then. Over time, uh, built up um, the the OPG sets and and then got into Topps baseball, and um, and I just started working my way backwards and trying to get into the the vintage sets, uh, get into the seventies, the sixties, and eventually the fifties. Very cool. Okay, awesome. Tim, why don't you give us uh, your history in the hobby and what sort of brought you to today, and then we'll we'll hit the we'll hit the real juicy stuff. Sure. I grew up a little bit earlier than Sean did, so. Uh, Mid-70s, small town Ontario. Uh, hockey was a sport everybody uh, followed, watched the least. Um, I used to get to go to games, collected cards. This is the first set that I collected. The 75. I have all my original cards. They're all in PSA 1s or 2s, I'm sure. Uh, and I, I brought something which is kind of interesting. Just to show you how passionate I was about hockey cards, I wrote this when I was about seven years old. It's my three wishes. I'm going to read them out. Uh, Tim Heacock, my three wishes. I would wish to have $3 million. <laughs> I would wish to have all the hockey cards in the world. And I wish I won all the trophies in hockey, like the Hart Trophy. How how are you doing with winning those trophies? So I'm 0 for 3. Um, and the closest on any of these is to getting all the hockey cards. <laughs> so you're not really close on any of them then, are you? Not yet, but there's still time. 
you know, 119 years of collecting between us, it's got to go up still. Uh, my claim to fame, which I can't prove, is I created the first art card ever. I actually have it here. So I drew that in 1980. OPG never grabbed it and ran with it, so it's been hiding with me since then. But um, I've collected cards my whole life. I uh, I remember that uh, after high school, went to university, walking through the mall in Toronto and seeing a Wayne Gretzky rookie card for sale in a shop for a hundred bucks, and I went, "Holy cow! I've got four of those." And I went back, dug them all out, and it's just been nonstop collecting since. And uh, I've watched the hobby evolve. Uh, I'll show you my greatest uh, pull I've ever had to give you an idea of how the hobby's changed. It's this card. I Is that pulled a fresh out of a pack, upper deck French Sergei Fedorov, which was the most exciting moment of my life because my dad and I cracked that at 20 bucks a pack in 1990. That was a $350 card. Uh, I thought this was the greatest hobby ever. Now I actually searched eBay today and the highest price is five bucks, but it's, it's what it means to me. So um, now I, uh, I collect patches. That's my, my main passion. I like older guys. So for instance, I love these one-timer cards. That's Dave Keon. Uh, I collect old autographs uh, of players. Uh, I've got a, a wide variety of stuff. Um, I'm getting my kids involved in it, which is great. Uh, my son's trying to get in it. Um, uh, you know, it was interesting watching Sean's uh, episode a few a few ago. I just love what he's doing with his son and posting videos. Uh, and I think Sean that's Matt. how you get Sean Matt. Yeah, that's yeah. how you get kids in the hobby is by having someone else who's passionate about it saying, "Hey, do it with me," and uh, they they just ride along with it. So um, that's what got me to today. Great. Okay, so I'm just gonna let all the viewers kind of know how we came, how the three of us came about tonight. So first of all, when I realized that Steve Grad wasn't gonna be able to join me on the show tonight, um, I wasn't sure what I was gonna do. And I mentioned last week or on Wednesday that I might just freestyle tonight on this when Saturday comes along. And Sean actually sent me a, a message on Facebook and said, hey, uh, if you're just gonna be winging it, do you want me to send you a couple of questions that, that you can discuss on the show? I thought, and I wrote back, I said, I'll do you one better. Why don't you come on live and ask them live? And then that led to uh, basically thinking about, well, maybe I'll bring on another guest. And Tim had sort of mentioned to me a few, uh, several weeks ago that, you know, hey, um, I got a good a good idea for a topic that I think would be interesting. So I wrote to him late, late last night after he was already asleep because he didn't respond to me until this morning. And I said, hey, uh, can you come on the show tomorrow night? Because I, I got another guy and I think you guys will, I think it'll be a good mix. So they both, uh, we met earlier today. We've had a few discussions to sort of set the stage for tonight. And, um, and that's how uh, we came together. Sean, I don't really know Sean, except that I know we have met at shows. I think we bought something off me at a summit one time, probably at an expo too. Tim, on the other hand, I do go back with, um, we've known each other from uh, Hobby Insider and online, and then um, uh, dealing at the expo several times and, uh, and really online communication. So I, I'm pretty happy with, with having both you guys here. I think we're going to have a good show. So let's get into it. We talked about, uh, or I've talked about, that this show is going to be about, about investing and estate planning for collectors. Um, you know, Tim is a professional investor uh, and estate planner. Sean, the same, maybe not estate planning, but has investment experience and really just financial experience. So I want to bring these guys on and have a talk and give you guys some um, advice if we can, uh, but nothing that will be legally binding. Nothing that we tell you today is investment advice. You cannot come back at us if you go buy something and lose any money, okay? Um, 
Before we do that, let's we have some comments. Let's get them uh, through here quickly. Ziggy is in the house watching. Thank you, Ziggy. Welcome to the show. As Justin, your guest, said the next day, yeah, Z Z Justin called it last on Wednesday, saying that uh, Vegas Dave would be hyping Dave car cards, which he did the exact next day. Andy, welcome to the show. Billy, 20% buyer opinion. I still don't understand why they chose an auction house. Jason, hello, everyone. Thanks, guys. Hello, Jason. London represent. Awesome. Tim, is that nice shirt from The Natural? There you go. It sure is. We were talking. I'm impressed. <laughs> there you go. Andy knows it. Okay. Sean, we're going to start with you tonight. One of the things that we had talked about, which I think we're going to, I want to jump right into this topic because I found it really interesting. I think a lot of people watching will have thought some of these same thoughts. And it really has to do with the fact that the basketball hobby has taken off lately. Cards have taken off. And if you were to have invested, say, $10,000 10 years ago in basketball cards versus $10,000 10 years ago in, say, hockey, baseball, or football cards, you might be a lot better off. And I think that that feeds into the whole FOMO, the fear of missing out. Sean, you had some ideas about that. Uh, can you speak to that at all? Uh, trying to get us kicked off here. Yes. When um, when when COVID was considered a pandemic, uh, I looked at my stock portfolio and I was stuck in it like everyone else. Um, uh, you, you couldn't trade out of things like cruise lines um, fast enough uh, to to, um, you know, keep an average price. Uh, you were already down by the time you knew. Um, and you were very locked in. And, and I think the how the basketball market for cards has exploded um, has been similar in that it locked a lot of people in an upward trajectory, um, whether they wanted it or not. It, 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 the, it's a market and it doesn't ask you how you feel. Um, those people who had a lot of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman uh, cards, um, all of a sudden were, um, you know, looking at prices that were going from two to five to 10 to 20. Uh, and you, could, you couldn't trade in and out fast enough for the most part. You could, you could augment your collection. You could buy more, uh, especially with Dennis Rodman. He, he moved up a little later than the other two. You could keep buying Dennis Rodman, but you really couldn't, transform yourself from uh, a hockey card collector to a basketball collector just because they got hot. Um, so basically it rewarded those people who were already in. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, hearing a little bit of echo, we'll ignore that. Um, so, you know, I, I'll admit when, when basketball cards started uh, really charging up in values uh really at the end of march early april right through april continuing through may i had those those thoughts of man you know it's not the fear of missing out it's the fear that i missed out a little bit different you know and hindsight's 2020 of course but um you know for for anybody and i did luckily i did pick up some basketball cards just over a year ago or a year to two years ago and experienced some increase in value but not as much as I would have if I took all the dollars I ever put into hockey, baseball, football, and it put it all into basketball. I think a lot of people are 
kind of thinking, man, I sure wish I went about this differently back then, similar to the Tops Project 2020, which is just out, we weren't even planning to talk about, but it just jumped in my mind that, you know, you could have bought those for $20 right from Tops. A few weeks later, a couple months later, some of these cards are doing 3000. They've come back down to earth or somewhat down to earth and have really come back to uh, correct it, I would say. Um, Tim, do you have any sort of comments on fear, the, the, the fear of missing out uh, kind of issue that we all have and how it applies to either to the hobby and investing in non-hobby assets as well? It's funny. I feel it all the time. <laughs> so um, I look at my collection and uh, I see things that uh, out in the hobby that are rising exponentially. Just in the hockey card market, look at Wayne Gretzky rookie cards, so graded cards. All, all vintage graded cards are just going through the roof. I don't have a single one. And I'm thinking, oh, why didn't I get into that side of the hobby? And, and I step back and, and I just think to myself, well, what, what is my purpose with my collection? Am I, am I trying to get this type of cards? Am I trying to chase from the investing side? Or am I just buying what I like and keeping it? And um, there's always a mix of both. And Jeremy, we've talked about this. But you know, if you're, if you're trying to get in there and, and make a buck on this business, and lots of folks are, you know, it's, it's, you got to find the trends before they happen. And it takes foresight. It takes luck. Um, I don't think anyone's got a, I know in the stock market, there's no formula to get that right. Um, so, you know, that, that's kind of how I see it. I, I haven't lucked out at it at all. Yeah. I mean, one of my thoughts on it is that one thing we can do to set ourselves up for success is really studying the players, study, you know, studying the teams they're on. And even if you can do this, if you can somehow tune into local radio stations in the cities of these players and what are, what are the, what are the local uh, sports commentators saying about these players? How popular are they in their own cities? Um, you know, what, what sort of expectations does team management have for these players? Are they an, an A-list prospect, a B-list, you know, that's in that is intel that not everybody i think goes the distance to get i've seen a couple guys online talk about researching the players and they they all they want to do is look at statistics and i think statistics are very important but i think it's more important to get an understanding like the teams do at the draft combines getting to know the individuals their character and that's something that we don't necessarily know as as sports card collectors so that's, I think, something that you can really do to, to help yourself with that. Okay, cool. So let's get into um, something that's really interesting. And I, it's interesting to both. So all three of us on screen, we're all up in Canada. Uh, a lot of our viewers are in Canada. We have a lot of viewers in the States as well. And so this topic, we're, we're kind of calling it, um, you know, the added burden for Canadians that we have in the hobby up here. And it's interesting because, first of all, for the Canadian viewers, um, just to make sure you understand what these burdens are that we're all under and that you're all aware of them. And for the American viewers and international viewers to know that, you know, as a lot of you have customers up in Canada that you're shipping cards to, if you're selling on eBay or elsewhere, um, that we in Canada do have these additional burdens that are upon us. So Sean, I'm going to start with you. I want you to talk about the cross border issue, and then we'll move to Tim and we'll get into uh, some of the other items on the list. So Sean, can you touch please on cross-border issues for collectors? Okay, I think the one that starts off right away, and I'll, I'll give as an example, um, there's there's a, a, a company out there that helps people sell called Sport Lots. Uh, in When you look at how much does it cost you to ship 
to Canada, um, the amounts are so uh, distinct between any United States address and any Canadian address that right away you're already looking at a four or five dollar differential. And then if that person um, sends uh, that item uh, using uh, either United States Postal Service or UPS and they assign a value to it, um, you know, if it crosses a certain threshold, then not only will we be necessarily charged a um, um, HST, but if depending on the courier, we are likely to get a fee for handling of that HST charge. Um, United States Postal Service is the best of the, the couriers. Um, and and I, I've personally paid um, a tremendous amount for something that came uh, via Purelater. Um, so I guess it, it starts right there and, 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 it, and it's a huge, um, it's a huge difference. And, and United States Postal Service um, is very cheap to ship all the way from, from, uh, from California to New York um, compared to uh, what we're facing in Canada. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we see it certainly with the global shipping charges on eBay that Canadians, we really hate that because it's extremely expensive. You know, if you buy a $10 card, it could cost you 25 to $35 to have it shipped. Um, that, that's a huge part. That's a huge part of one, one of the burdens for Canadians. Tim, what would you add on to that in terms of the additional burden for Canadians in the hobby? <laughs> so, Sean, great, great point. And because uh, that that is a huge deterrent for my own collection, just buying on eBay, because it's that global shipping program that they've implemented, uh, plus 13, 15, 18, 25 bucks to ship a card um, has reduced my transactions by 50 percent on eBay itself. Um, and then there's sellers who won't even ship to Canada, which is uh, frustrating. So I collect baseball cards as well. And it is extremely difficult to collect baseball cards being a Canadian. Uh, it's, it's cost, uh, inefficient. Uh, it's hard to actually get the cards. Then you've got mysterious charges crossing the border. You don't know when you're going to get dinged. Um, so what's going to be hit by, um, extra charges from the government. Um, th those are the main things that are, that are causing me issues right now, as far as trying to build my own collection. Uh, we'll, we'll get into estate planning, I think shortly, and maybe I'll elaborate a bit more on just, you know, what, what it's like to have assets in the U S at, uh, Com C or even with EPACs with Upper Deck, um, Jeremy. I'll let you lead into to that when you want to. Sure. We, we, yeah, I think okay. Let's let's touch on that one um, a little bit later when we get into the estate planning piece. Um, okay, Sean. One of the topics that you and I discussed earlier was the concept, and this is now more into investing. What you're investing, the concept of pivoting and diversification. What what are your thoughts on like when a when a collector needs to consider? pivoting, diversifying, and what are the advantages of these uh, for a collector? Okay, wonderful. Well, we've never seen a month that moved uh, in terms of sports cards, I think like March of 2020, uh, in, in, my, in, in my opinion. Um, maybe going back to 1991 um, would probably be the last time when we, when we had uh, Conseco rookies, uh, um, you know, jumping all over the place. Um, so what happened in March 2020 was that we, we, we Michael Jordan um, 
was the leader of the price movers. And he carried with him Scottie Pippen very soon after. Um, and I mean, we had Michael Jordan and, and a, a chart of Michael Jordan cards, you know, all, all show peaks, you know, February, but more so March. Now, how you can pivot, and, and, and I think it's really important that anyone out there has the belief that they can pivot. I, I haven't seen anyone who can't. Just because you missed the boat on Michael Jordan doesn't mean that you didn't get the shot to pick up Scottie Pippen next. And if you still miss that, there was a quite a quite a time before Dennis Rodman started picking up. And then an odd thing happened where in a lot of sets, Dennis Rodman cards surpassed the value of Scottie Pippen. And so if you look and then if you look at the statistics and who won awards in those years, you'll be led to players like Akeem Olajuwon and Charles Barkley, Shaquille O'Neal. They didn't move right as soon as the last dance, and they sat at the same prices in many cases. You have those opportunities to pivot. If you have belief for the future, that you believe that Shaquille O'Neal will rise in price. So you have to take, have a belief and then act on it. And if you act on it with conviction and you buy, you know, either good cards or lots of copies of something you believe in, you still have the chance to pivot. Yeah. So I, I love that because really what you're saying is I, I don't think it, you know, we always, I think the general feeling amongst, amongst collectors and especially collectors who collect with a, with an eye to investing as well is that we always feel like, oh, we missed it and there's no more opportunities. But I think there's always opportunities. And if you look hard enough, I think what you're saying, Sean, is that if you look hard enough, you're going to be able to spot some of these opportunities. You just have to maybe open your mind a little bit, think outside the box a little bit and anticipate what could come down the pipe in the future. I mean, right now we know that sports are all about to, well, some sports are about to start up again. Is there opportunity to buy or opportunity to sell? Um, I think if we are looking for these opportunities and you actually take your time and think logically, you might be able to find some, you know, you saw Michael Jordan going up in value. Hey, maybe Scottie Pippen, Scottie Pippen goes up in value. Well, maybe Dennis Rodman is going to go up in value. You know, you need to be nimble. Um, pivoting is, is a, is a great word. And actually Andy asked the question, pivot means to change your stance and either buy or sell. I think, I think it, it can mean that Andy, but I think it could also mean pivoting from say, you know, if you're if you're currently on a on a program where you're putting ninety percent in or say let's say seventy five percent into hockey and twenty five percent into basketball or twenty five percent into other sports, maybe you're going to pivot and do forty percent hockey, sixty percent basketball, or whatever it means to just kind of adjust your approach. I think is kind of what we mean right now by pivoting. And when you think of diversification, I think everybody knows, and Tim can probably speak to this, that diversification is important in any asset holding um, or across your assets just to protect you from one class of assets really tanking, going down in value and hurting your overall uh, net worth or, or wealth. So um, good stuff there. We're gonna back up here. Chris says the global shipping program is used by a bunch of sellers due to scammers abusing the system on eBay. Fair comment. I can understand why they would do that. Al says, I saw a new SPA Aginla auto card on eBay today, listed for $40 and the shipping was $30 on top of it. Yeah, that's gonna be a detractor for 
sellers in this for, for buyers in Canada to purchase from sellers in the States. And one of the things, one of the messages I like to get across to American sellers tonight is if you can avoid it, please don't use it, especially if you trust your customers, which I think a lot of people don't. But, um, you know, in uh, for the most part, you know, if you if you uh, think about the common sort of um, uh, generalization about Canadians is that we're all very nice. We're we're always saying thank you and sorry. So maybe start trusting us a little bit more and try to find ways around the global shipping program if you can. Um, Barry says, listening to you guys makes me realize again how fortunate we are to have so many advantages living in America, except for free healthcare and your president. Can't imagine the frustrations. <laughs> I'll throw those two comments in for myself. Um, yeah, I mean, in the sports card world, Americans have a humongous advantage over Canadians. Um, I, I, I will definitely uh, agree with that particular comment. It sure would be nice if we could get past the import charges and the shipping delays being caught up in customs. You know, it's also important for Canadians to be patient when receiving something from Americans because it can be caught up in customs for a long time or just at the border and not crossing. So it's important that we as buyers don't just throw negative feedbacks or make claims right away. Let's talk to the sellers in the States. Let's try and work with them and strengthen the relationship between American eBay and other platform sellers and Canadian buyers. I would really want to encourage that. Um, Billy says more awareness on how the how to game the postal system, how to game it would be nice. Cost me three bucks to send to Canada from Nashville on eBay. It isn't even an option to sell like that as a US seller. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't help you with that, but I sure would love you to be able to figure that out, um, especially by contacting eBay and finding out what you can do as an American seller to, to help us up here. I know we'd greatly appreciate that, Billy. Um, Barry says things are already dipping. Start buying the stuff that was hot a week ago or a week or two ago. As the current guys start to get more love again, the level playing field we discussed, Jay, is now gone. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of things have come down in value since they were super hot. But you know what? I mean, if you're looking at cards like, um, you know, the key guys, they're not coming down that much. I'm still watching these pretty closely, like the Michael Jordans. Wayne Gretzky's are going up right now. They are not going down. Michael Jordans, you know, if you look at the PSA 10, it did 108,000, then it did 90. Now they've, they've done in the 70s. I mean, that's a, a whole other ball game, if you ask me. I, I'm not gauging the whole hobby based on PSA 10 Michael Jordan rookies right now, but um, I think that there are still opportunities. And when things come down, hey, it's a better time to buy probably. Uh, hat tricks and home runs. The other angle is to not be so emotionally tied into the market. You you sometimes have to cut a loss to get gain. That I mean, guys, I'm sorry that I'm doing all the talking right now, but I, I have to address that comment because I've said I've been I've said that exactly that before on the show that if you are married to your cards that have gone down in value, all you're doing is sitting on dead inventory or dead personal collection items, unless you don't care about value and then then keep it as long as you want. But if you're in this to flip or to make some money or to fund the hobby, if you're sitting on something that's gone down in value, it pays to take the loss, bring in the cash and convert that cash into something else that you can then go make money on and recoup the loss instead of sitting on a consistently declining valued, uh, declining value asset like this. Like that's better <laughs> of Tim. Exactly. So hat tricks and home runs. Thank you for the comment. I, I, I love that. Um, <clears throat> once it goes, Chris, once it goes, once it makes it to, to global selling, uh, eBay sees it as delivered by the seller. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, it's a toggleable item for eBay as sellers. When it was new, it was on auto by default. Okay. 
Les says, Tim, you've convinced me to diversify. Sell me that Bobby Orr, that in the game Bobby Orr jumbo patch. Yeah, Tim does have some amazing uh, jumbo patches for sure. And Ralphie says, when seeing items priced in US dollars, it makes Canadians sad. Yeah, I mean, it, it does, but I think we're all at the point now where we can easily do that conversion and understand what it is we're spending. When I'm buying on eBay, I don't really care what the currency is. I'm, I just want the, I just want the darn card. So, okay, enough of me talking. Thank you everybody for the comments. Let's get back to the guests now. Thank you, Ralph, for that last one. And hat tricks and home runs. I do thank you again for your comment. I really enjoyed that one and nice to see you on the show tonight. Okay, let's move along guys. Um, Sean, you talked about insurance with me and uh, just, you know, the importance of insurance on, on your collection. Can you touch on that? Remind me what you were saying before. And then Tim, I want you to jump in and get into estate planning. Okay. Well, almost everyone who owns a condominium or a house is likely to have the, uh, at least the typical package of homeowners insurance. In a typical package, there's usually 50,000 assigned to a group of assets that includes um all types of collectibles and art um and sometimes some other items so a fifty thousand dollar uh cap on that group so you think about what could really happen to your house um a lot of condominiums are made of concrete um and so they're not likely to ever burn down some people's house have a lot of lumber in them. It's possible that the house could burn down entirely. What's usually, what's probably a little more likely is a sprinkler um, hitting your cards and doing tremendous damage. Um, and so it's pretty easy to go over $50,000. Um, you know, if you're collecting, um, you know, a lot of Bobby Orr cards, or if you're, if you're collecting, complete sets from the 70s and 60s that might be multi-thousand per set. It's easy to get. So I think most most collectors are probably underinsured. Um, one thing that I guess the, the 50,000 cap does do is that it does give you a bit of protection against um, some smash and grab um, crimes. Um, or a situation where you got flooded, but only maybe an inch or two of water um, getting at some of your sets. So in many cases, maybe 50,000 is all right. It's really difficult to go beyond that because um, I've reached out to my um, insurer, who is a major insurer, and um, they're not at all interested in adding um, a rider specific to the collectibles uh, category. Um, you can try and work with them, but honestly, it, what you'll find is that you may end up spending more on your collectibles category than you do on your entire condominium or house insurance. Uh, and if you do that, then you're now gonna lose money on your uh, collection and you're not gonna have a lot of fun. Right, because you're just paying you're paying premiums all the way through, and that's just really uh, digging at any gains you might have upon your eventual disposition of of the cards. And I, I want to just say to the viewers, you know, this is a very investment sort of uh, themed discussion right now. 
where, but, but, but be clear, we are also, we are collectors here. And I know a lot of you are collectors, but when you are a collector and you have significant or even whatever significant is to you, money, capital, value tied up in your cards, and maybe you only invested $10, now they're worth a thousand because your cards went up in value. You become an investor by default, like it or not, you are invested in your collectibles. Um, Sean, do you have a solution at all to this? Well, there are, it's, it's a little easy. It's it's a little easier in the United States, um, where there are a few corporations who have been doing at least closer to reasonable priced insurance for collectibles. If uh, if you Google, um, you know, sports card insurance, um, you'll typically get. Um, some American companies that are offering that. Um, I did find one in Canada um, and they required um, a full analysis and a, um, a, 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 a like, like everything had to be documented and the values needed to be assessed um, before they would um, uh, engage in, in insurance. Um, and and I'll also just say one other thing is that the, you got to also have look at look at what perils you're insured against because um, you know uh, a lot of times if if you if you live near a river and that river floods that's overland water and so you may have a lot of insurance uh, on your house um, and there could be conflicting clauses. Sure. Um, so you, you also have to think about that too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, being at the national in the States, there are companies set up at the national that are specifically there to sell sports card and collectible insurance policies. And I believe I've even seen one set up here, uh, either at the expo uh, or the summit in Edmonton. Tim, you are, uh, a, you are insurance licensed. What can you add to what Sean was saying to maybe give the viewers some more advice on insurance or just set them straight, uh, you know, corroborate what Sean said on what, what, what is the landscape really like in terms of insuring collectibles right now from your perspective? Okay. So specifically on life insurance license, that's a separate show, but okay. I, I have been um, insurance license for house and auto insurance way back in my, my early career. Uh, and, and Sean's brought up an, an interesting point and that ties into risk management for collectibles. Uh, and, and he highlighted some of my, my concerns. So you know, we talked earlier, Jeremy, about things that keep me up at night a fire in my house, a uh, theft, um, my kids tearing my cards apart by accident because uh, I've got a nine-year-old that loves to shoot them against the wall. You know, those are things that I worry about because these are valuable collectibles that you keep on hand. Uh, you compare it to the stock market, you don't keep your stocks on hand. Those are in a trust portfolio. They're looked after. They're insured. You're, you're, you're okay for the value. But when it comes to this kind of stuff, any type of collection, you're, you're managing the risk yourself. So when you look at saying, well, what kind of repercussions do I have if something happens, you default to home insurance or condo insurance and you look into, into the, the text of those policies and Sean's dead on. There are limits on collectibles and some of and each company is different. So you have to actually look into your own policy and say, okay, well, what have I got? And it could be as little as 2,500 bucks to 5,000, depending on the company you're using. And then you look at, well, how they determine the value. Oh, they need an appraisal. How do you get an appraisal on a sports card? It's, it's impossible. So there's not much there. So you have to keep that in the back of your mind that, okay, if, you know, and, and Sean also mentioned, you can't get a policy in Canada. 
to cover as a writer. It just doesn't exist. I've searched for this myself. Uh, in the U.S., they've got specialty companies that deal with you know, sports cars and, and, and collector cars and just about anything you can think of. It doesn't apply up here. So we're kind of stuck holding the bag a little bit. And it's a risk management that everybody's got to look at and say, well, what am I going to do to protect my cards? Like, do, do I buy a safe? Do I keep them in a uh, safety deposit box? Um, what am I comfortable keeping in my house and where am I going to keep it? So if you think, well, the first thing that thieves look for is what's beside your bed. You know, the first drawer, what's uh, not that I'm giving away where I keep my cards, but um, they go through the drawers, they look under beds, like everything that's there where a lot of folks would keep stuff, that's where they go first. So it takes some thought. If it's a worry and a concern, thinking I've got a lot on hand, you got you to gotta start uh, looking after this yourself because you, you can't look to insurance anymore for this. Agreed. I mean, yeah. I, I, I carried a rider on my policy for a little while and I had to send them a, a, a detailed list of every single card that I had and I had to assess value. And I did that by looking at, I assessed the value myself actually. And I based it on what I, what I wanted it to be worth without being, without being, um, you know, totally irrational about it, but that whatever I, the sum of that, of that valuation was helped to determine what I had to pay in premium. So the higher you value your collection, the higher premiums I had to pay. And Tim, I, I don't, that was years ago. I don't, I, don't, I changed my approach and uh, I have a different security um, strategy now, if you will. Um, so I think the message here in terms of insurance, everybody is that, you know, be proactive in how you're, how you're storing your cards. First of all, where are they? Are they three feet above the ground so that they're, they're not going to get flooded? Where do you live relative to bodies of water? Are you in, are, what, what is your home? What is your house or your condo built of? Is it concrete? Is it, is it, is it wood? Find out if it's wood, you're, you're in trouble. If there's a fire in that building, if it's not, you may have, uh, you may be a little bit less, have a little bit less risk with, in terms of your, your collection being destroyed. Um, and then wherever you are, if you're in the States, you can access some policies. They're not cheap. And if you're in Canada, it's more challenging. But I think you, if you want, you can work with your insurance companies if you are willing to pay the price. There have been some comments on this stuff. So let's, um, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's get to these right away here. So um, Billy says, you know, how would you, how would a claims adjuster determine the value of a one of a kind item, like a rare high value one one Well, I mean, I'll take this. I think it depends if you can, if you have proof of purchase, that's one way that they would basically, you'd basically have evidence of what, what you paid for it. If you pulled it out of a pack and you don't have that, then you're going to look for comparables. You're going to look for other one of ones of that player with the same attributes on the card and, um, and convince the adjuster that that's what it's worth. Andy very astutely observes that I take tiny <laughs> sips of my water glass again. Thank you, Andy. That's why I smiled about five minutes ago when I saw you, you type that. Richard says, does the insurance game change if you bought your collectibles with an investment inc, i.e. your cards are owned by a corporation? There's an excellent question. Um, I don't know. I think it depends on what insurance companies are, what, what sort of insurance they are willing to extend to corporations. But I think it would probably, you know, I can speak to in Canada. I, I don't know if you guys can, maybe one of you can take this, but my feeling is that it's going to be the exact same sort of uh, insurance that's available. Which one of you guys can speak to this, if, if either of you? Please do. Uh, so when you're, when you're purchasing, purchasing an asset with a corporation, you have to see if it's passive or an active asset. So uh, is this part of the business of the corporation or is this a side, a side asset? Um, 
it's it would be a type of policy again you're looking at the same type of stuff as far as appraisals um is this a corporate liability policy with assets beside it so um you can investigate, but I haven't heard of anything either on a corporate side or on a business liability side that would carry into sports cards or, or collectible assets. Usually those are personally owned items, uh, unless it's an actual business. Okay. Okay. Let's get to Richard's next question. I understand Beckett values may be used on valuations on capital gains for alternative investments, such as sports cards. Would that apply in the case of insurance? I mean, you know, I think, I think, um, I think you want to go with what's going to benefit you the most. If Beckett values are higher than what's actually going on in the marketplace, you might get away with it. If the marketplace is going to be better for you in terms of values than Beckett, you might want to go with marketplace. You might want to show them completed listings. You might want to show them what you paid for your cards. If that's more than they're worth now, I think there's different approaches for that, but I'm just speaking really off the cuff. Uh, Tim, is that something that you can speak to just to provide some All more? That I'm a bit off the cuff too, because again, this was a, a couple lives ago. But um, the re when you when it gets to the claims process, that's where the the rubber hits the road. Like, what are they actually going to give you for your loss? And this is where the insurance company wants you to prove the value, and this is why they want appraisal. So it's like when you when you um, insure jewelry, they want the appraisal. What's this thing worth? And then they want to give you actual cash value, saying, okay, well, if you bought it today and it's five grand more than you paid for, well, you get the five grand on top of it. That's how actual cash value works. But as far as a sports card goes, you have to, you know, it's it's less of a reliable market. And I, I'm trying to think as an adjuster, if they came into this and say, well, you know, I, I don't know if I trust where you're getting your data from uh, an eBay sale or a, or a guide. Uh, we're just going to give you what's on the insurance policy. If you actually have it insured, um, that, that's, that's getting deep into how a claim would work. And you want to talk to an adjuster and specifically what the process would be. Okay, fair. I, I am I was I am aware actually of a uh, so PWCC, the notorious uh, eBay consignment seller. They have a, a, a service called the Vault, where you can actually store your prized collectibles in their vault. And I believe if you look at the detail or the fine print sort of thing on on their website, you'll see that they actually insure the cards that you have with them at current market value, and that's always changing. And they're probably one of the best out there to assess what that is because just because of the volume of cards that they broker and they know what cards are worth really probably better than most people do. So um, that's another option is to store your cards at PWCC and have your insurance with them. Although you really have to trust them if you're, if you're going to do that. And I know a lot of people don't trust anybody with their collection. So I think, um, I think that's a something just at least to, to be aware of everybody. Um, Ralph says, do banks, insure items stored in a safety deposit box or would that have to be separate? That's a good question. Do, is it insured if it's in the bank, but the bank wouldn't know what's in there. So anyone know what, know the answer to that either of you guys? No, we don't know. Okay. okay stab at it. So there is, there is um, a little bit of insurance that comes with it, but it's not on a specific item. Um, and again, I'd have to figure out the dollar amount. I'll give you an example. So it might be um, $5,000 if, if, your stuff is missing and they don't care if it's jewelry or a card or whatever. So I know the bank has something in place. I've also heard that they haven't paid out on it. <laughs> so okay. in certain cases, so I don't know how reliable that is, but you think a safety deposit box is theoretically the safest place to put stuff. There should be some backing somewhere. Right. Yeah. Uh, Sean, do you have any, any knowledge about that at all or not? Yes. Um, one of the things that is possible with insurance under some circumstances is that the card, if it goes missing, actually didn't have to be in your home at the time it was missing. 
you actually could have been taking it with you to the expo um, and it could have been stolen from your luggage. It is possible under the right circumstances that um, your homeowner's insurance may actually pay out. Um, although I will warn people, one of the things that I see um, as a uh, requirement is that um, a police report in many cases has to be uh, engaged within 24 hours of the crime being noticed. So that's something um, that we want to uh, keep in mind that uh, if, if, if something goes missing, you don't want to wait before you uh, report it to the police. Really, really important information right there, guys. If you, yeah, if something happens, you got to call the police pretty much right away then to, to lock in that time limit and not have yourself excluded because you uh, you weren't even aware that that was a requirement. So very, very valuable information right there. Uh, Billy says, in the States, I have to carry insurance on my safety deposit box. It's worth it in the rare event. A bank vault floods or fire starts is about 10 bucks a month. So there you go. And Andy says, it's a bit harder to enjoy your collection if it's at someone else's house, i.e. the vault at PWCC. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly uh, agree with that. Okay, we, we love, we, we have these cards, we love them, we want them with us, I think a lot of the time, uh, so we can enjoy them and um, look at them. And I mean, that's why, that's why we like cards that we like, we like to look at them. So who doesn't wanna, who doesn't wanna be able to do that, right? Although you can scan them and keep pictures of them on your phone or your computer, that's also easy to do. Okay, let's move along guys. So Tim, um, we talked about uh, a broad category of, of issues that keep you up at night in the hobby. And I think these are gonna really resonate with pretty much everybody watching. So I'm gonna uh, run through the list and then we will sort of, uh, Tim, you'll kick us off and Sean, you'll jump in um, here and there with, with all, these, uh, all these issues. So actually Tim, yeah, I will, I'll list them off. So one of them, Tim, is fake patches and fake autographs. Another one is trimming. Another one is authenticity. Um, another one is market manipulation and insider trading. Another one are buyers groups. And finally, um, eBay versus Facebook and Instagram as, as transactional platforms. So kick us off, Tim. Whichever one keeps you up at night the most, which one would that be? And uh, describe what you're thinking. Okay, so I'm glad we have about four, four and a half hours left in the show because I'll need that for this topic. Um I'll be, I'll be specific to myself. So because I collect patches um, and big patches and expensive patches, uh, patch faking um, and more in a broader sense, fraud within our hobby is, is worrisome to me in, in, a, in a huge manner. So to the point where when I'm looking at a card, uh, I've passed on cards which, with fantastic patches because I don't trust it. I think, I, I don't know if that can actually be real. And, and to be at that point in the hobby where I can't trust something I'm looking at uh, concerns me. So um, certain companies have protocols. I know it's come up in previous shows as, you know, why don't you do this to stop patch faking or put, put some picture on the back of the card, um, you know, have a database with it. Uh, so you're, you're kind of taking a leap of faith and, and having trust with the, the company itself. If, um, if it's a, a new, if you're breaking a box, but also the seller, you're buying the seller is saying, is this patch exactly as it was when it, when you got it or has anything happened to it? So uh, autographs. So autograph faking. I, I gave you an example earlier, Jeremy. I'm going to share. One of my favorite baseball sets came out in 2004. It's called Topps Originals. It's a buyback set. And they came back with uh, a 
phenomenal star baseball cards autographed by the players numbered from uh, 101s up to out of 55s. And they came in a, encapsulated by tops with two stickers on each end. And these are great. I, I spent a lot of money on these cards and I have them in my inventory. And then what I've noticed in the last 15 years is that uh, people have been able to lift the stickers off the top, take the, the uh, common cards out and create their own star autograph, a Hank Aaron autograph on a card and put it in the holder, put the seal back on. And it's gotten to the point where the fake or the fraudulent autographs are more prevalent than the real ones. And there's cards on eBay, many of them, they're not even on the checklist. And I see people bidding on these things going, holy cow, like you don't even know what you're buying. Like not only have you not done the research, you're just trusting it. And the autographs are pretty good. They're not far off, but that's a set that's just been obliterated. And it, and it makes me sad, but also makes me think there's a lot of fraud in this hobby. There's a lot of folks out there uh, trying to make a buck off of us. And we've talked about Kenny fakes. We've talked about, uh, look at PSA. We're not going to get into that too much. But when you've got a trusted source that is implemented, uh, implicated into a broad scenario where they're uh, fraudulent in some manner, and you think, holy cow, well, that's what we know. That's actually where they were part of it. What about the stuff that we don't know or that they weren't part of it? Like how many cards have been trimmed that they had no idea was trimmed? It's out there. So it's not authentic anymore. So these are things that... that I'm worried about with my collection. I'm worried about the hobby because it's a really, you know, we were comparing it to the stock market and the stock market's got regulations. It's got oversights. It's got uh, repercussions. If you break the rules, we're kind of the wild West in, in our, in our hobby where there is no repercussions. There is no watchdog out there keeping an eye out for us. There's no insider tradings. There's no uh, people watching for buyer manipulations, uh, buyer groups, as you mentioned, uh, we're on our own. So how do we mitigate risk for this stuff? And, and you can only do it to a certain extent. And, and Stephen Perot said it on, on his uh, broadcast, that it's research. You research the heck out of stuff. What should this thing look like? What do cards from this set typically look like? And does this fit? Is this the right jersey? Is this the right patch to match the other patches that, it, that came out there? Is it uh, other sets? So you see this company using a jersey like this in other places. So you can get some sense of that. Um, one thing I do like is... Um, Autograph certification. So a lot of cards, that's what I'll buy now. I uh, just got some great ones from Jeremy. Um, so buying a raw autograph on something, you're taking a risk. And uh, someone told me that 90% of Mickey Mantle autographs on eBay are fakes. Um, and they're getting better with fakes. Uh, they're getting to the point where they can, um, well, actually, I was thinking about this today. You can almost 3D print a Wayne Gretzky rookie card uh, and put it on original stock. Like, when you can make an $80,000 card, I'm going to spend some time and money and figure out how to, how to, to make it fraudulent and we don't know what can be out there. So I just, that's, uh, that's stuff that keeps me up at night. Yeah. You know, the, the fake patch one is a big one for me. It came up, uh, it came up last on, on Wednesday on the show, but I want to add, you know, um, actually Todd Poland, who was my guest on episode number four, he mentioned, uh, and he's a friend of mine. So I can, I can actually say, you know, he, he mentioned the show that he spent about two and a half million dollars on cards in the last 15 or 20 years, whatever it was. And a lot of that was into um, the cup autograph like RPAs of Upper Decks, the cup, which is for any basketball guys out there, it's the equivalent of exquisite, if you didn't know that. And he's basically, and he was he was driving the values of these cards in the hobby. One, one guy had a, a, at least a very big part of driving the values of the cards in the hobby uh, for several, for probably at least 10 years. And he's basically stopped. He's basically stopped buying the cup because he's too afraid of fake patches. And I think that's, uh, you know, it, number one, the, the, the number one problem are fake patches. And the number two problem 
um, is that a guy like Todd is no longer in the, in the hobby and that will have a, a detrimental effect on the value to the cards that everybody else has because he's not there helping to prop it up. Um, so something really, uh, really to, to consider. And um, I, I hope that, that the companies, uh, the manufacturers do start to uh, find ways to help protect the value of their cards um, into the future and not just worry about it until they're sold through the distribution networks, um, but actually consider what goes on, you know, one, two, three, four, five, 10, 20 years out and protect the customers long-term. I, I really want to see that happen. I think that that's very important. Um, okay. So that's patch and auto fakes. Uh, Sean, anything from anything on that from yourself? I, th I think Tim covered that very well. Thank you. Awesome. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, and, you know, Tim, you almost, you covered a bunch of stuff there, really. Like, you know, I think trimming sort of falls into, into the same sort of category. It's a problem. Everybody knows that there was a scandal last year. A lot of big names in the hobby were, were implicated. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, um, that that problem goes away a little bit. And uh, the reason why I even say that is because, you know, Tim, you mentioned that we are the Wild West here and we are not regulated by a central governing body that has any authority. However, we do self-regulate quite a bit, and there are all sorts of detectives out there that are looking for fake patches. You know, people who are experts on a certain team or a certain era or a certain player, they're out there, and they're out usually on, in, on the, the, the various hobby message boards or the Facebook groups. They're out there alerting other people to these issues. So while we are not, there's no real authoritative regulator, we are self-regulating. And I think it's important that we continue to do that as a hobby uh, until or forever, but until perhaps there is some greater uh, power out there that wants to come in and help us all out to preserve the value of these things. Because again, this is an investment themed show, uh, but professional investment themed show, not just, oh, you know, buy Mike Trouts and flip them two weeks later for a 15 or 20 or 100% return. We're talking about protecting the value of your wealth if you have wealth tied up in sports cards. So I think, you know, I think that's a fair tie-in, right, guys? That it's important that we, we and the hobby protect everything that we have invested. Otherwise, we're all going to come out of this looking like idiots, for lack of a better term, if, if it gets worse and worse and worse and never gets better. Um, let's talk about, uh, buyers groups for a moment, because there's been some questions about it. So I'm going to just go back to some of these comments here. So, um, Andy actually says, is a buyer's group where a number of people pool their money together to purchase something more expensive? Well, that's not how I think of it, Andy. The way I think of a buyer's group is that you've got, it can be one, it can be one guy, but it can be 10 guys. And they're kind of, um, in cahoots in that they're saying, okay, guys, let's go buy up all the Shaquille O'Neal 1992 Upper Deck rookies in PSA 9s and 10s. Let's buy up every single one of them that hits the market and drive up the price. And I'm not saying we're going to, I'm not saying you're bidding against each other. You're just going to buy them all as cheap as you can, but you're going to buy them all and create that demand. And then you're probably going to tell other people that you should probably be buying Shaquille O'Neal cards. And then you're going to, and then you're going to set, you're going to list them for sale at a price that's super high. And then maybe someone you know is going to come and buy one so that you actually have a comp that can be re referenced on eBay and say, hey, look, the last one just sold for 1500 when you were buying them for 250 or 300 or whatever that, that discrepancy is. And all of a sudden you've inflated the value of these cards artificially 
because once you're done buying them and once everyone else is done buying them that wants one, well, now what? Where are, the, are you going to keep on buying them forever into eternity or are they going to come back down in, down in value once you've sold out of yours if you're the, the buying group? So I think the term buyer, buyer's group, Andy, is it, it just refers to one or more people who are sort of in cahoots trying to manipulate the price of a certain card or cards. Um, Barry says backdoor stuff from company employees to their friends to sell for them and split profits is similar to insider trading. Yeah, that would for sure be similar. hundred percent. Billy, like, like Jeremy mentioned in the last show, upper deck could very easily take pictures of all the cup RPAs. He did it himself in less than a week, four days. I took pictures of 28,000 cup cards. That is correct. Les, welcome to the show. My man seems like such an easy fix for upper deck or in the game to just take photos of their patch cards and keep a large database. Why don't they do it? Well, we, we did talk about this with, uh, with, with, I think it was with Billy from upper deck and it's basically an added cost. I, I believe it's basically an added cost that would drive up the price of packs. And the other problem that they have with it is that it's more, it's more humans touching the cards. I touched every single patch card in 0809 the cup. If you have an 0809 cup card in your collection, I touched it. And, uh, and, but trust me, I was very careful because I respect these cards and, you know, I knew that I'd end up having some myself. Uh, Barry says he, hopefully that stuff isn't happening like it used to. Uh, definitely. Hopefully it isn't, uh, Richard, the amount of autograph forgeries is really scary. Hence, I prefer to obtain autographs in person, but of course this is many times not possible, especially if we're talking about deceased players or players who live far away from you for sure. Paul, welcome to the show. Sadly, the criminal element likes to evolve to new ways of profiting off their marks. Yeah, they're, you know, criminal uh, minds, they're always one step ahead of us. Um, and it's important that we keep ourselves, I believe, uh, you know, up to date and just always be critical, you know, you know, uh, <clears throat> as an as a as having audit experience, financial statement audit experience, we're trained to go into every situation with professional skepticism. It doesn't mean that you don't trust people. You're professionally skeptical of things. I think we should all be professionally skeptical of certain cards that we may be purchasing. If you don't know uh, where they, you know, where they were, the chain of ownership along the way until they got to you. Okay. Um, great. So the eBay versus Facebook and Instagram discussion, uh, Tim, that you brought up. Can you speak to that, please? Uh, absolutely. So I've used eBay since 1999. So uh, I was sort of an early adopter to that. The only thing I've been an early adopter for. Um, and I've, I've done a lot of transactions. I've seen that. Guys, um, guys Tim, Tim still has a, a flip phone. <laughs> a what? What's oh, a flip phone? Um, Sorry, go on. Uh, I, so I, I'm familiar with it. I've been using it. I've watched it evolve to an expensive, difficult thing to use. So uh, watching things evolve in our hobby, such as Facebook, and I've been on Facebook since 2007, um, and now it's a completely different Facebook than I've ever seen. Now there's, there's rooms everywhere, and these rooms are different sports card rooms, and there's different just about anything in there. And it's it's remarkable what's happened. And as, as Sean mentioned earlier, March has been a crazy month. And it's been crazy as far as card value. It's been crazy as far as the amount of time that people have on their hands, the amount of money that they're sitting on. Um, I, just as an aside, the sports card gambling market, which is $105 billion a year, is at zero right now. So where's that money going? Yeah. So stuff's shifting around in the last two months that's never happened. And, and we're seeing things pop up. 
as far as avenues to do business. And um, Facebook has these groups that now I'm using. I'm looking at it going, wow, I've, I can auction cards in Facebook. I can buy cards. I can do razzes. I didn't even know what a razz was a year ago. Um, you can get into group breaks. You can meet all sorts of people, and it's great. But but you're looking at going, I don't actually know these people. Like, who am I doing business with? And Instagram's another one. I just joined Instagram three weeks ago, and I've already done a transaction on there, a significant transaction. And again, I did. who am I dealing with? So we're, we're getting into a, a known element for me, which was eBay, where we've got a lot of systems in place to protect the buyer and the seller. And there's a, there's a very regulated process on how you do business, uh, how an auction is done. You know what you're doing when you get in there uh, to an unregulated area, which is now Facebook. And, and there's there different formats and you're now dealing still globally. There's, there's people all over the world in these little groups that you're in. Um, so there's less protection and, and more buyer awareness and knowledge that has to be in place. And in Instagram, I'm still trying to figure out um, on how business evolves in there. I hear a lot of people doing a lot of business in Instagram and I'm thinking, well, that's, that's separate in itself. Like how do you figure out how to protect yourself in, in an environment like that? Um, so those are how the evolution of this hobby is happening. And I'm, and I'm seeing these things on a rapid pace and COVID's driven this uh, for our hobby. And I'm, I, what's going to happen next, I'm not sure, but it's it's meteoric and how quick this is happening. Yeah. You know, when we were chatting earlier about this topic, you made the comment that, you know, you really don't have any protection on a Facebook or an Instagram. And I, I agreed with that. You really don't. However, the only protection we the protection that we do have, and it comes back to self-regulating and and building trust in a group, is the vouching system, where you know if you're going to be admitted to a group, oftentimes you need to to be vouched. If someone is, I see you see vouch posts all the time. Someone will post in a Facebook group and say, "Looking for vouches for Tim Heacock about to do a big transaction," or they'll say, "Looking for vouches on myself and Tim Heacock." so that both parties to the transaction can gain some comfort that they're dealing with somebody who has a strong reputation and is known for not, well, for never having ripped anybody off. Also on Facebook, there is a group, I believe called like card, like sports card scammers or something like that, where you can go in this group and see everybody who's ever been caught scamming. They have this master list and it's like probably thousands of names long by now. So you can search alphabetically and look for a name that you may know. So it's really important that when you are considering, especially a, a significant purchase, and I mean, and again, that's relative to who to, to your position, but if you're making any significant purchase, you need to get comfortable and don't just trust the person at the other end, ask for vouches. Now let's talk about vouches though. Um, what I forget if it was you, Tim, or you, Sean, one of you made, made the mention earlier to me that vouching comes along with its own issues. Uh, put up your hand, whoever won that, whoever. Yeah. Tim, speak to the issues around vouching because anybody out there watching right now who has ever done a deal and relied on vouches, you need to hear this. So technically with vouching, there's a, there is a liability concern. So when you put your name out, um, it's almost like co-signing on a loan, but, not, but in a very informal way where if I say, Jeremy, I, I'm vouching for Jeremy. He's a good guy. And he enters into a transaction that someone's relying on. And then Jeremy reneges on the deal. That seller can theoretically come back at you and say, wait a second, you vouch for him. I'm holding you liable for, for what happened here because I relied on your comment. And uh, now, can this go as far as a lawsuit? Not likely. But what it can do is it can tarnish someone's name within uh, a, a social media platform. If that original person says, well, you know what? Forget about Jeremy. 
your vouch is worthless and I'm never going to deal with anyone like you. I'm going to tell everybody not to trust you and your vouchers. And, and really, you didn't have a big play in the transaction. You just went out and said, oh, I, I know Jeremy. I've done something before. And the reality is we don't know what happened to Jeremy. Like maybe there's a legitimate reason why that transaction didn't happen. Maybe it's something as simple as it's four weeks of mail. And this person just couldn't handle it anymore and went nuts and decided to blame everybody. That transaction didn't happen. And you're caught up in that, that whole thing. So you got to be careful when you're vouching. Um, do you really want to do it? And, and just to elaborate on what you're saying, uh, as far as, you know, there is a little bit of comfort in these groups. There is some vetting as far as getting into a group in the first place. And, and I agree. Um, one thing I do when I do a transaction with somebody or start thinking about it is I look at their friends list and I say, okay, is there any of my friends, friends with this person? Like, forget about a vouch. If I recognize somebody on their list already, then that makes me feel better right off the bat. And the more people you meet in this hobby and you friend them and you can trust them, then you're going to see those names pop up more. And that just builds a little bit of, of uh, more reliability in these transactions. So um, Instagram, I rely on that less because you don't really have a friends network anymore. You just follow people. But on Facebook itself, it's a bit more intimate when you can actually follow somebody else. And there's uh, kind of a sense of you actually know who that is. Um, but uh, the other aspect to this, which concerns me, is that with Facebook, it's almost assumed that you're going to pay by um, electronic money transfer or uh, PayPal friends and family and to the point where it's frowned upon that you're going to assume that you're going to pay with goods and services and uh, I've gotten to the I've noticed that no one even suggests goods and services anymore and I think well, that's a, that's a bit of a leap for me I'm quite happy to add four percent to what I'm going to pay if I don't know who you are so I've got some recourse uh, if whatever happens to transaction I get my money back um, but if uh, you know if I were to scam somebody I don't want that to happen because I'll lose the money I want EMT and I want friends and family so I can leave if I want it. Yeah. So there are things you can do to protect yourself. There are some inherent things to watch for, but those, those are some elements that, that I'm just wary of right now. Yeah. So one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, myself, I get friend requests from people in the hobby who I don't know all the time. And the first thing I do is I go look and see who we have and who we have as friends in common. And then I decide whether or not I'm going to add them as a friend because number one, they get to see my personal stuff on Facebook and I don't know you. Do I want that? So um, I'll admit I've somewhat loosened up over the last few months, especially with the sports cards live venture. I have many more people uh, friending me on Facebook. Um, but I think I think it's really important. And, you know, Billy Cardboard Nostalgia, he makes a really smart comment here that everybody needs to be aware of. Because look at it, you can easily build up goodwill on Facebook in anticipation of a scam by doing a few small deals to cultivate vouches. And same with Facebook in collecting, or sorry, I think you mean same with eBay in collecting cheap feedback, right? You can easily ring up 100 feedbacks on eBay by selling $100 cards or buying $100 cards and then come in for the kill for a five or $10,000 deal. So I think it is important to... Um, do your due diligence on who you're doing business with, because again, from a collect, from a, an investing, even estate planning themed show, we're dealing with real money here, and people will be devious out there. So again, it's that professional skepticism, or you know, professional might not be the word that that hobby skepticism that we need to have to really make sure that we are. Um, transacting with people. So what I recommend is that you only transact with people that you know personally and you've met and you know their face or that someone you trust knows personally, um, has met in person and knows their face and trusts such that you can 
find them if you need to. You have some personal information, even an, even an, a home address, something like that. I've actually gone as far as have someone send me a picture of them in front of their house because I wanted to make sure that that they knew that I knew that I could find them if it came down to them. I'm, I'm not some tough guys that's going hunting people, let me tell you, but I will turn that over to, to the police. So Sean, um, if, if you can unmute yourself, I want, I want to ask you something because you do a lot of business on some of these larger consignment services. You mentioned sport lots earlier on in the show. I know you're a, you do a lot of activity on sport lots, something that I'm not even familiar with until you showed it to me yesterday. You're also, you also have a very large portfolio on ComC. Large, I mean, tons of cards available for sale. You're very active on ComC. So, you know, I, I bring this up because um, there, I believe in ComC, the issue of vouching and trust is completely el eliminated. You don't need that. You don't need to trust because ComC handles that. Sport lots, I don't know as much about. So thinking about those two services that you use, and your other hobby activities, what do you do to protect yourself when you're dealing with people that you may not be dealing with face-to-face? -face? Yeah, yeah. So the, 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 the harder half of it is when you're a seller. Um, I, I think when you're a buyer, you have uh, the potential for PayPal. And if you layer on MasterCard or Visa with your PayPal, uh, you're very likely um, to... Um, uh, especially if you don't use friends and family, you, you've got a, bu a bunch of recourse available to you where, where, where there's more damage is when you're a seller. Um, I, I have heard um, people talking about um, situations like Australia, uh, where um, if you're sending from United States to Australia, uh, from what I understand, if you're sending United States Postal Service, there is no way to track because what the United States Postal Service will do is they will track it to the depot in Australia and then deem that delivered. How that actually gets to the final mile um, allows some fraudulent people to just say, did not receive. And that really scares me. That, that keeps me up at night because, um, because this hobby is built on fun. and. If a seller is out there, um, you know, sending a card that meant a lot to them or was valuable, and they they send it off to Australia, um, you know, and 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 someone and someone just just pulls a did not receive on them, um, it's it can be devastating to their to their happiness, and uh, so that keeps me up at night because then that guy isn't going to, um, you know. Uh, enthusiastically go to the card show and go and 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 put two hundred dollars down on a tray young thinking that oh, i might it might happen to me again yeah i agree i agree completely one of the biggest risks in in people getting ripped off is that they get disenchanted with our hobby to never return and i mean as a as a loyal passionate hobbyist you know my whole life i certainly don't want to see that ever happen um, I want people to have good experiences in the hobby and to do that, I think they need to be educated on how to look out for themselves and not get caught uh, vulnerable by a scammer because they weren't uh, familiar or ready to defend against said scam. Um, Francisco makes, you know, he gives probably the best advice that we can give. Always pay goods no matter if it's $5 or $5,000. Now, 
I'll, I'll throw a, ca a caveat onto there. You know, I do a lot of business with people that I that I'm friends with, people who I've been in their home, I've met their their family, their kids, their parents, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, in those cases, I'm not saying you have to pay uh, goods on PayPal. Although if you're not, I mean, let's be clear here: you're breaking PayPal policies if you're not if you're paying if you're doing friends and family for anything other than what it's meant to be there for, which is you know sending money to family to help them live. I believe. Um, but, you know, if you're paying someone to cut your grass by PayPal, friends and family, you're paying someone for a, for a sports card, you're probably breaking their policies and you could get busted for that. But if you're somebody who is willing to take that risk, then, I mean, that that's great for you, especially if you know the person very well, then you may have less risk there. But as Francisco says, you know, his rule of thumb is always pay goods, protect yourself, because it also protects the seller too, right? I mean, if something gets lost... And, uh, and and you're going to make a claim, well, at least this way, I believe, I shouldn't say it protects the seller. I'm not sure about that. It might not. I should take that back. I have to retract that comment. Um, but I think that, or, or maybe it does. I, I'm not sure. Someone can speak up. I'm not a, a PayPal guru. Um, so I'm just going to stop that line of discussion right there because I don't want to talk myself in circles anymore. Francisco goes on to say, registered mail is the way to go. It can be tracked and insured bigger transactions use FedEx. And you know, when I've ordered in big cards from the States, like in the thousands of dollars uh, of value, I do tell my seller, like, let's use FedEx or UPS. Let's use one of the big courier companies because, um, you know, they're usually the most reliable and you will have tracking and you can watch that thing move through the world until it gets to your doorstep. So I think that's uh, an important comment. Okay, shall we move on? to uh estate planning now which tim that's kind of your uh your your wheelhouse so uh sean pardon me while we kind of move on to tim now for what might be a bit of an extended time but i want you sean in the background to be paying attention please anything you can add at the end will be very much appreciated and valued so please uh save up some thoughts tim estate planning um, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of lead you into this. There are a few key issues that happen in estate planning. So let me steal a bit of your thunder and just mention what these what these things are that we're thinking about when we talk about estate planning. We're talking about the event of, of the collectors or the, the collector slash investor's death. We're talking about a divorce that could happen if you are married and a divorce is something that may happen. And we're also talking about incapacitation, the ability to, 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 to make decisions for yourself. Tim. Please let's let's get some good free advice, everybody, from Tim. Thank you very much in, in advance on how to uh, protect yourself from an, an estate standpoint as far as your sports collectibles and sports cards collections go. That's quite a lead-in. Um, pretty exciting topic, I have to say. There's still viewers on this one, but um, so uh, this is an expansive topic, and I spend a lot of time on it with clients. I'm going to start off with the stats. So, 50% uh, of Canadians don't have a valid will right now. And that's for anything you own. And you think, okay, well, if I were to die, what happens to my stuff? Is it going to go where I want it to go? Or is it going to eat by taxes or fees or costs as far as administering a state through the courts? Then you get in and say, okay, well, I've got a will, but does it do everything I want it to do? And when you get into estate planning, you really have to start with the end in mind, saying if I, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, what do I want to have happen to my stuff? And when I have this go through it, how do I want my family to come out of this? So estate planning is really about maintaining a family unit. It's about being creating a legacy 
about being remembered for being a great person, the, a giving person, all the things you want to be remembered for. Um, but what invariably happens with estates is that the opposite happens. You see fights, you see arguments, you see um, estates being contested, you're seeing assets not going where you want it to go, you see stuff being unequal. The worst thing I tend to see with estate planning is when kids fight, they were friendly before, but when they go through an estate, now they, they aren't friendly. Uh, and often it's because of trivial things. And believe it uh, or not, some of the worst estate fights I've ever seen is I've seen a, a $15 million estate blow up because they couldn't decide who gets what cutlery and who gets what teacups. And it's emotional stuff. So when you tie in assets that are untraditional and you think, okay, well, how am I going to deal with an art collection, a coin collection, a stamp collection, or a hobby collection, sports cards, whatever it is, memorabilia, um, what do I want? You have to ask yourself, what do I want to have happen to this stuff when I'm gone? Uh, am I going to divide it to my kids or to my wife? Like, do, do they want this stuff? So these are questions you need to ask, ask yourself before you actually start the planning part of estate planning. And once you've come up with it, and I'll give an example for myself, I look at my collection, and I think, okay, well, the first thing is it's, it's fairly expansive. I got a lot of stuff. Uh, my kids have shown some interest, but I've got three kids. And I've got one kid who doesn't care about it. I've got one kid who really likes it and one kid who I don't know yet. So it's going to be difficult for me to pass stuff on to one of them without creating an issue for the other two. So it's an all or nothing thing for me. So I can't really do anything in my estate. So while I'm alive, hopefully for a while, I may give some stuff to one kid and you know enjoy it that way. But as far as estate planning goes, I need my collection sold. So I can't own it after it's it's or it can't be owned after my estate's gone because the kids are going to fight over it. So I need to give instructions in my will on how to go about that. So I maximize its value. Uh, my spouse or whoever my executor is doesn't get ripped off because when you think about hobby knowledge, you and everybody watching this has been in this hobby for a while and you've built up, Hey, if I were to sell something, yeah, I know how to do it. I'm going to go on eBay with my, uh, existing feedback of 2000. I'm going to have uh, good credentials. I'm going to put this kind of auction and with a buy it now on it. Well, great. You know how to sell a card, but does your wife know how to sell it? Do your kids know how to sell it? Does your executive know how to sell it? And here's another thing that becomes an issue. If they don't know how to sell it and they try and sell it and they screw it up, they're liable. So the moral of the story is you got to give explicit instructions to those people that matter on a, what you want to have happen to this collection and make sure they agree. And B, how do you deal with it? So to the extent, and you want to be specific, is here's what I've got. Here's who you're going to contact, who's either who's going to sell it for you, because you don't want to do it yourself. And so you got to have someone you trust in play. And, and uh, I can see businesses coming out of this who will say, look, you know, we'll sell your sports cards. And you maybe you see these already in ads. We'll sell your gold and silver, whatever it is. We'll take your estate and sell it for you but you want someone reputable that you can trust and they can move this quickly for you and get the cash back in. So you have to outline that to those people that uh, you care about specifically ahead of time. So they know this um, other estate planning issues. The biggest thing is passwords. So cyber assets. Um, can your wife or your kids get into your PayPal account? Can they get into your eBay account? Can they get into your ComC account? Can they get into PWCC if you've got a million dollars of cards in there? Do they know who to call? Do they know what to do? Um, if the answer is no or maybe, you got to find a central place to share these passwords and the instructions on how to get there and what you've got. So the other thing I see with the states is often people die and the surviving spouses don't know what they have. <clears throat> they 
they find out years later you had another bank account somewhere. Well, hey, I didn't know you had a, a COMC account. I've never heard of COMC. And you've got how much there? So again, you got to make sure everybody knows what you have and where it is. So getting back to things like passwords, um, instructions on, on what you've got and where it is. Now we're dealing with another issue that's popped up. And it kind of popped to me when we were talking to Tim from COMC and his ability to have an inventory of cards. And Sean, you've got this. And I'm thinking, that's a U.S. jurisdiction. The problem with the U.S. jurisdiction is they don't recognize Canadian powers of attorney or wills. So if you've appointed someone to look after these assets, you almost need to do a new will in that jurisdiction where you have an asset. A prime example of this is if you have a house in Florida. Florida doesn't recognize Canadian wills, and they also have different estate planning issues such as tax. So you have to have a Florida will to deal with your house down in Florida, or it's going to take forever in the state because they don't care about Canadian wills. Same thing with sports cards. So if you've got stuff at ComC, you've got stuff at PWCC, and now we've got things like uh, Upper Deck and EPACs where you can virtually open up cards. And, and again, I haven't done this, so I don't know what happens to these cards once you have an image of them, but I'm sure they're at Upper Deck for a little while. Well, that's, again, a U.S. asset, a U.S.-based asset. And there's a whole host of issues that come into estate planning. You can get into, if it gets really big, U.S. estate tax. And then how do you get that stuff back into Canada? And when does Canadian tax come into play? And it's, it's it can be a disaster. So the way you mitigate this risk is to, talk about it ahead of time and plan for it. And you think, okay, well, I've got this now. This is great. I'm in good health. I'm not worried about my accounts in the U.S. because I intend to be here for a while. But if something were to happen, and right now we're talking about death, you want to make sure that your, your spouse, wife, friend, someone on your behalf can go in and say, look, I forget about your estate. I'm going to get these cards domiciled back in Canada right now. So I'm going to hit that ship button on, on um, Com C, get that inventory here, and then we'll deal with it. So you don't have to actually send a will or anything to to um, uh, to Com C and get them to deal with an estate. The biggest concern I see right now is actually not in estate planning; it's in capacity planning. So you are far more likely to lose your capacity before you die than actually just dying. And it's interesting with COVID. There is a side thing that's happening: is that there is a massive upswing in how many people are doing their wills. People are afraid right now that they're going to kick the bucket because of COVID. And I'll, I'll admit, so am I. I'm, I'm thinking about it. It's stuff I haven't thought of before. It's stressful. But what's more stressful to me is that what if I get this and I'm on a ventilator for a month? Like, who's going to look after my stuff? And powers of attorney are designed for that purpose. They come into play when you can't make decisions for yourself. And you have a power of attorney for health, which is fairly straightforward. You have a family member make health decisions on your behalf when you can't. A power of attorney for finance deals with your money, your assets, everything you have that's tangible. And it's your bank accounts, your investment accounts, anything that you want to name in there. But if you've got a hobby collection that's out there and whether it's uh, stored in some other place or you've got active eBay auctions or whatever it can be, you got to make sure that your power of attorney, the person acting on your behalf, knows what to do and knows where to step in and what to step in for. So again, this is uh, the way you mitigate this is the same thing. It's communication with the person you're appointing. And maybe you even think about, I might have more than one power of attorney. I got one for my regular stuff and one for my hobby stuff. And you have a separate person do those two things. So you think if I'm going to, if I've got a big hobby issue that I need someone to look after, I can actually find a buddy of mine who's also in the hobby, who knows how to deal with this and have them be that power of attorney. Somebody, so, that I, and, and it's got to be somebody that you obviously, I think this goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, somebody that you really trust Right, your power, 
because we use the term power of attorney, but that that refers to an individual who you are empowering to act as your attorney and make decisions for you for your estate and your finance and your finances, your health. Just to they just are really, you. Just to really clarify it, yeah, yeah, they are they are you. You're, they're acting on your behalf. Any transaction they do is actually for you and about you. <clears throat> so um, that that's that's the estate planning and and. Um, power of attorney issues that have really come to mind with our hobby. Um, again, it's, it's easy for us to say, ah, that'll never happen. Um, I'm young or, hey, you know, I'll deal with it some other point. But it's starting to pop up. And I'd love to ask Tim over at ComC if he's ever received a power of attorney in, or if he's ever received a, a probated will to say, look, someone passed away and they've got a pile of stuff there. You got to give us that stuff. And then what does he do with it? Like, what's his process when that happens? Because it it happens. Like, uh, it, we hate to say it, it comes up. So um, it's a bigger risk than people realize. And there's bigger ramifications uh, that can happen. I think people understand. But it's stuff that you can you can mitigate ahead of time. Yeah. If I was Tim, I would be, all right, send it to legal. You know, you have a legal department you have to take care of, right? That, that's what I would do. Um and I'm sure they have had that happen. I mean, they've been around long enough now that their clients have died. It's just a matter of it's 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 just a matter of time. I say, but it's just a matter of time for all of us. And I think the the one of the key messages here to everybody watching is that you know we are all going to die, and we don't necessarily know when that's going to happen. And you know, it's like you might think you might think you're invincible, but you're not. And if something tragic happens. What is what are your plans for your collection? What who's going to take it? Who's going to dispose of it for you? Who's being left with it? Do you have your documents? And I'm going to show you guys something because I I when Tim said to me earlier that you know only 50% of Canadians have their wills, I went I went uh, where I went and I I pulled this out and I showed him. Oh, look at this. So this is these are my personal documents. I'm I'm going to show you the envelope and I'm going to show you what's written on the envelope and. You know, only certain, only my executor uh, really has access to this other than myself. And so he here's what it is. That's my wife's name, Stacy. And there's number one in here is our wills. We have our power of attorneys. We have our personal directives. And look at number four, instructions to dispose of sports card collection. I didn't just do this today. This has <laughs> been, this has been uh, my official, my official documents really since my second child was born. And I, I would recommend that, you know, you, you take, you spend a grand or whatever it is and you get yourselves these papers and get yourself set up. So trust me, you will sleep better at night knowing that if you don't wake up, your stuff will be taken care of. Your, your kids will be looked after in terms of your sports cards, especially if they are a, a very significant part of your overall uh, wealth, let's say. Um, you know, Andy says, this is a wild word. He says, can't take it with you, Tim. No, you can't. So, you know, you got to plan for this stuff. You really, you really need to plan for it. Um, Andy also says that he needs a vouch. He spelled it wrong. He needs a vouch for myself. Well, Andy, um, you know me pretty well, my man, uh, talk to Rod, talk to Vic, talk to, talk to anybody. They'll vouch, they'll vouch for me. Um, okay. Back down to here. Um, so, uh, hat tricks and home runs, the ComC Canada location is located in BC. So as long as you have it on Canadian soil, that is covered. Sure. If that's where your cards are now, Sean, you're a comms, you are a ComC, um, super user. I would call you. Can you, what are you, what do you know about this? You're in Canada. You've got significant amount of cards there. Where are your cards located? And have you thought about this issue for yourself? Yeah, I have. I have talked about it with um, 
with ComC employees uh, off the record. Um, and I, and I, I guess I have a few thoughts is that um, if, if I were to pass away right now, um, I think it's the complexity of who, who are my heirs that is really the, a big determinant. Um, because if I'm, if I'm giving my estate to one person, that one person has the ability to take all of my assets and continue them. Um, when, uh, like in, in past years, people used to get away without probating a will. Um, but what happened was I know, uh, uh, some of the major banks, uh, ended up having to, um, ha having liability issues where someone, um, came with a, with, a, either a valid or what appeared to be a valid will showed up at a bank branch um, and uh, emptied an account only to find that, that there was a subsequent will that superseded it. Mm -hmm. And then the bank was uh, ending up having to pay uh, its legal team to go chase this down in court and figure out who was, uh, you know, who was correct. Right. In the uh, in the case of ComC, I I, I want to say if, uh, a few important things that I think could really help. If you have forty thousand items at ComC, and you spasmatically say, "Oh boy, um, well I'm going to get in a fight over, um, you know, what I'm going to give to my heirs," folks, that's twenty five cents times forty thousand. And so, if depending on how much ComC cash is in your account, those heirs might end up having to pay thousands of dollars to ship them back. And then when they ship them back, you're going to be asked to declare a value. If you declare a value on your own items, you could end up being charged HST. Right. But on let me ask you this Sorry, Sean. Where where are your cards? Are the, do you know physically where yes. your ComC cards are? Are they in BC or are they in uh, or are they Washington State or or Oregon? I forget. Okay, so technically, here's the answer: is that uh, if you're shipping to Burnaby, BC, um, they are held in Burnaby for approximately one month, and then after uh, on a rotating basis, I believe they drive a van two ways to uh, Redmond, Washington and back. So, and, and you'll see that on Canadian sellers where you'll see on ComC um, item held um, at, a remote location. at a remote location, which by the way, does harm their, I think, I believe it harms their eBay sales a little bit, but it doesn't last long. Okay. And then, and then, and then, then it's going to be in Redmond, Washington. However, legally, um, ComC does have a presence in British Columbia, and they can rely on that um, to kind of be pseudo Canadian at times. Which would which would um, help which would help the Canadian uh, consignor to yes. repatriate those cards back to Canada if they have to. Tim, what, what do you have to say? So wills are provincially regulated. So um, a, a, an Ontario will doesn't necessarily uh, create validity in BC. Um, 
again, if you do a will in BC, it would have different clauses, have different um, protocols and, and, and for that province. So yes, it's much better. There is a good chance that Ontario will can be interpreted in BC and be valid there. But again, you want a will in the jurisdiction where the asset is, whether it's a, and, and I see this most often with property, um, with houses, with vacation properties, that when you're out of province, anywhere out of Ontario, your will's not necessarily valid. Um, so again, I don't know about BC. I know that the rules for wills in Ontario are, are specific for this province. Um, so you just, so you gotta be careful. You have to think, okay, what's my risk? Is it something I want to mitigate or am I okay with carrying it? And that's with anything. Right. And uh, if you've got Com C cards, you think, ah, it's not a lot. I'm just gonna give instructions to my friend, my spouse, whatever, get them back. End of story, and I'm gonna mention it in my will. Great, you know, that's a, that's at least you've addressed it. And that's yeah. really the goal of the whole thing is that be aware that there is a potential issue figure out your best way to deal with it ahead of time and you're good to go. Yeah. I think, and really what you want to do is discuss all these issues with your legal representative, with, with the lawyer that you are going to hire and pay to do your will and all the other documents that I just showed you listed on my personal uh, documents folder. Talk to them about it. When I went to see my lawyer about our wills, um, I told them, I, I told them all these things. And, uh, and I, you know, I said, Hey, help me out. I want to make sure. And he told me what I needed to do to ensure that my sports card collection would be properly handled upon my demise, whether that happens sooner or later. Uh, we, again, we don't know when it's going to happen. So everybody, you know, it's good advice to really start thinking about this. And as, as Tim mentioned, you know, there's been a, a rush on will services lately with COVID because people are, are, are scared. And the fact of the matter is you just never know what's coming. I mean, there's accidents all the time. So it's best to, especially if you do have family, if you do have kids, make sure you're protected. Um, if you don't, it's, I, I would say it's less important, but if you have parents that you want to leave it to name them in your will as, as the beneficiaries and get yourself handled, get yourself covered off from a legal perspective, especially if, if your cardboard is, is, is valuable to you, uh, financially speaking. Um, Billy has a question. I don't know that this is one that we're going to be able to answer unless either of you know the answer. So I'm just looking for a yes or no answer to this question, gentlemen. Are there tax implications when your loved ones receive a major sports card through probate? Would they be taxed on the transfer of ownership? Tim, please. So ta tax for any asset is paid by the estate. So if that is deemed to be a taxable asset, and again, now, now it would be a capital gain that you're dealing with. So you need a cost base and you need the current value. And the date of death is a deemed disposition of that asset. So you take a snapshot of saying, okay, well, it's worth, let's say a PSA 10 Jordan. I'm going to guess, what is that? 500 grand? Uh, <laughs> um, well, right now, call it $70,000 for discussion. 70 grand. And you paid five grand for it. You got a $65,000 capital gain on an estate. Let's say you're in a 50% tax bracket. 50% of the gain is taxable. You owe about 15 or 20 grand in tax. But that's by the estate. Once that item is, or once the tax is paid, the item goes to the beneficiary tax-free at the new cost base. So that's an eighty or seventy thousand dollar card that the beneficiary has now received. They can do whatever they want, but they don't have a tax liability. Right, because so they acquire it. So this brings up an interesting point. So when you're trying to equalize the state with your beneficiaries, you, you need to equalize it after tax because you have some things that are taxable and some things that aren't. And I've seen this blow up as well, where you think, "Oh, I'm going to give." This item to one kid, let's say it's a house, and this item to another kid, let's say it's an RSP, and you think, oh, they're equal value, the kids are going to be happy. Well, wait a second, the RSP is taxable and the house isn't. Net of tax, there's a massive difference, and you're going to create an issue with your kids. 
So same thing with sports cards. You have to think, okay, was well, tax going to be applicable to here? And, and I need to design my estate with an after-tax thought in mind. Like where, where is the tax going to be paid from? I think I have to sell the card or sell another asset to pay the tax on my PSA 10 Jordan. So with estate planning, you got to deal with this stuff. And that's, and Jeremy, you actually brought this up and I don't know how this plays out because the tax issue with our hobby has kind of been fluttered around and there's no definitive thing. Like, do we owe capital gains tax? When do we owe it? No one's ever come asking for it before, but what, you know, is it ever going to come up? And uh, I'm going to go on a quick tangent, then then I'll stop. But one, this, this is a political thing. When you're seeing the federal government playing out billions and billions and billions of dollars to support our economy right now, and you're thinking, okay, this is great. They're actually giving us a bridge from uh, where we were to where we're going to be. Um, there's a problem that is being pushed down the road for Canada, and that is how do we pay for this stuff? And there's only three ways we can pay for it. And one is taxes. Um, the other one is uh, social programs, re reducing social programs. Um, uh, what would the third one be? Printing money. And the reality is it's going to be a combination of all of them. And in Canada, you think, okay, well, they're going to raise taxes. Taxes are so high in Canada compared to other countries, there isn't really any room to move. And they're already printing money like it's going out of style. So we may have an inflation issue down the road. And they can't cut social programs. So what's left? And the only thing that hasn't been taxed in Canada are estates. So I think there is a risk down the road that estates can get nailed with taxes. And because we got to come up with money to pay for the billions and billions of dollars we just spent. It's not going to magically appear, especially when our economy is just dropped and we're not going to have GDP anywhere where we were, or tax revenue anywhere where we were a year ago. So with that in mind, you think, okay, well, if there are going to be bigger taxes on estates than they used to, or maybe the, maybe the government's going to be more diligent on taxes. Are they going to come after our hobby? Are they going to come after estates where I'm trying to give stuff like a PSA 10 to my kid, and now there's a 50% tax on it? Uh, it's going to, I got to come up with a different plan. So we got to, we got to keep this stuff in mind that A, it's ever evolving and B, there could be a, another issue here as far as taxes go with okay. estates. Yeah, I agree. And and the way that an estate is taxed is that first it's, it's, it's taxed based on its value. So if the estate tax is 12% or 22% or 40%, that's what the estate is going to owe before the you know, upon transfer of ownership of those assets from the deceased to the uh, beneficiaries, you're going to pay tax based on the value of that. And if you don't have the cash, you're going to have to sell assets just to pay for just to pay for the you're going to, have to sell assets just to pay for the ones that are left uh, that got transferred to you as a beneficiary. I, I just funnily uh, as funny as it sounds, it's like it's like when you uh, when when people win big prizes on a wheel of fortune or a Jeopardy, and they have to sell something just to pay the taxes on what they won, right? Like that's kind of what what it comes down to. Um, as for your comments, Tim, about taxation on the hobby, I mean, I can speak to a, a little bit as I did practice tax for about fifteen years, um, and I was just telling my father earlier today that you know I'm no longer a tax expert because I've kind of moved on, but. You know, there there is a rule uh, and I can't speak to the U.S., but I'm sure there's a similar rule there. But in Canada, we have a class of assets called personal use property. And it's anything that is valued at under a thousand dollars, where if you sell it for under a thousand dollars, you really don't have to pay tax on it. But if you sell anything for over a thousand dollars, it all of a sudden becomes taxable as a capital gain, which is a preferred tax rate. It's half of your normal tax rate, but it's still taxable now. In collect for collectors, I think we kind of think to ourselves, well, boy, I, I don't never want to pay tax on a card. I buy a Michael Jordan for five thousand, I sell it for seventy. Oh, that's sixty-five thousand dollars of free money. 
Well, it, it might be, it might be free money to you if you're not doing it on a regular basis and it's not a business. You didn't and you didn't do it with the intention to make a profit. As soon as you engage in a business activity with the intention of generating a profit, you are all of a sudden, in the eyes of the Canada Revenue Agency and the Income Tax Act of Canada, you are all of a sudden running a business and profits from business are taxable. So it's pretty important that people, especially if you're dealing in big money, big money items, that you're at least somewhat aware of all this stuff. So really interesting stuff, um, really important stuff. Sean, please jump in. Okay, so one of the things that protects you is, is records of purchase. Because if a Michael Jordan card or, or, or a set, um, you know, we've seen, we've seen sets. There could be somebody out there who, who has uh, Topps Chrome Refractors 96-97 basketball. That set has blown up, you know, five, six times in one year. If they have um, a record of purchase, that could be very helpful if that terrible situation comes that they're ever audited. Now, I want to tell people something. PayPal actually keeps fairly good records that are fairly lengthy. Um, and they're very detailed about what corporation you paid when you made that transaction. Even if it was done on eBay, they will say what item on eBay you paid for. But your MasterCard does not keep long-term records. And you may end up having to pay, in some cases, $3 or more. Now, $3 is a lot if you're going to try and get 10 years worth of records. That's a lot of money. So um, trying your best to, uh, the, to keep records, of, especially of your MasterCard purchases, that would be helpful. A lot of us buy stuff at shows with cash, um, and we can't even remember what we've done it by the end of the show. It's hard. So, but well, just do your best. Yeah. So that uh, if this yeah. happens, I, yeah. that's, that's really good advice. And I can just say, you know, that's what I do at, at shows. I keep I keep a note on my my iPhone, and every penny in, every penny out, um, I mark it down so that I can do my accounting and make sure that I'm protecting myself in the long run. Another thing I do that I would recommend is, you know, I, I use a special uh, email account for all of my eBay transactions so that I can always go back and find out what I paid for something. I never delete those um, those PayPal emails telling you that you made a payment. I never delete the invoices that I'm sent from eBay. I keep them all there. So I think that's that's important too, if we are if you are ever going to be audited. Um, okay, let's just back up a little bit here, guys. Barry Grice says, this is this is already uh, about 20 minutes old, Tim, but uh, great info. Tim really appreciates it. So I'm not sure what that was about, but you have now helped me make a finite decision to pass on a winter home in Manitoba. Very funny, Barry. You probably know that that's where I spent the first 30 years of my life, in Manitoba. Um, and trust me, I never want to... I, I, and it's still home. I, I, I can bash it because I grew up there, but I never want to live there again. I do like they have summer home. homes there. <laughs> uh, they do. There is cottage country in, in just north of Winnipeg. And I grew up going there, too. It was a lot of fun. Uh, Paul makes a funny comment. Uh, I find it hard to believe that's the deal breaker. OK, Paul, settle down, Paul. No, I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> um, Richard says, could you buy cars at inflated prices, anticipate capital loss to reduce the ca taxable capital gains on your estate? That would be hilarious. Maybe all those Stefan Fisse rookie cards could come in handy for someone. I mean, you know, that's com that is common activity when it comes to um, other sort of uh, equities and stocks and that where people do their capital gains planning at, on December 31st. They they lock in some losses to counter counter their gains. And then there is a rule where, you know, if you buy those equities back within, I believe, 30 days, you will be deemed never to have disposed of them in the first place. So you need to make sure that you're going to wait the appropriate amount of time before you can replace. It's called re they're the replacement property rules. You have to make sure that you are waiting the appropriate amount of time before you replace your property that you claim the capital loss on. Um, Billy says, how would, how would a cost basis for collectible be established? If for example, you pulled that Jordan as a teenager and held it for 30 years, Hey man, you're, you're the cost of the pack, 25 cents. I think you would just have to, and trust me, the tax authorities are going to be quite all right. If your cost base is 25 cents, right? Cause that means more taxes for them. Paul says best comment of the night. Um, thank you on behalf of all three of us. I'm not sure which one it related to. And Austin Olson, welcome to the show. Love the show. Thank you very much, Austin. Happy to have you viewing with us tonight. Okay. Um, the next item, and we are really coming up to the to the end of this, guys. So uh, we said at the beginning that we we may go an hour and a half. They sometimes go two hours. These shows seem to go two hours. Um, so <clears throat> we were going to talk a little about a bit about um, stocks versus cards and value drivers. So Sean, I apologize. This was another uh, topic that Tim had kind of discussed with me earlier. It's the last one on my list that we have yet to uh, to address. Um, Tim, can you kind of uh, speak to what we were talking about there? And then Sean will have some closing remarks from you. And then we will uh, start the process of ending the show, which always takes a few minutes for me. Okay, so the, where this came from uh, is that there's a lot of comparisons between um, the stock market, investing in the stock market, investing in sports cards. And uh, I, I, I look at that and I think, well, they're actually completely opposite things. So when you invest in the stock market, what you're buying is not actually a stock. It's ownership in a business. And ownership in a business means you're investing in the future cash flows of that business, which you are entitled to. Uh, sometimes they're paid out as dividends. Sometimes it's just paid out as equity in the business. Uh, stocks trade on a regulated regulated exchange, um, at least the over-the-counter stocks do, and they're they're liquid for the most part. So you can buy a stock any day. It's the same stock. So if you want to buy a Royal Bank, my Royal Bank share looks exactly like everybody else's. So there's no uniqueness to it. So I'm not buying scarcity. I'm not buying any of the things that uh, you may look at in the sports card industry. So a stock is really nothing more than ownership in a business. So um I separate that completely and saying, okay, well, if I'm investing in the sports card industry, what exactly am I buying? Well, I'm not buying future cash flows. I'm not buying dividends. I'm buying a physical asset that doesn't trade on a regulated market, doesn't have a, a bid and an ask price per se. Uh, all I have to go on are, are past sales, uh, if I look them up on eBay or other sources, to guide my price. And sometimes these, these things are, are a scarce item, a one-on-one, -on -one, one out of two, one out of three. So values are based on completely different things than when you buy a stock. So when you invest in the sports card market, it's really a completely different thought process as to, okay, what am I investing in? Why am I investing in it? Is it a short-term investment? Am I looking for hype? Am I trying to get a one-on-one -on -one that I'm going to flip in one month, three months, six months? Or is this a long-term purchase that I'm going to store in my shelf for the next 30 years? 
So I think the conversation just came with that there is a significant difference between the two. And uh, I, I can't really find a basis to compare them because they're, they're, they're separate things other than, you know, some days I find myself choosing, do I want to buy a stock? Well, stock is sitting over there in my RSP or can I buy something I can look at and enjoy? Well, it's not, I'll more often buy the sports card. And, and, and anticipate that mail day, which we all love. Yeah, that's so the best part. You know, something that popped in my mind there was we in the in the sports card investing world, we draw a lot of our terminology from the investment world. And, the, you know, I, maybe a lot, maybe not a lot, but the, the word blue chip, you know, it's used a lot in the hobby, you know, invest in blue chips, invest in Hall of Famers, invest in legends and icons, the, the Michael Jordans, the Mickey Mantles, the Wayne Gretzky's, right? Those are the guys, those are the blue chippers. So if you are looking to invest in sports cards, my recommendation, my, my general rule is you want to stick with the guys who are going to outlast their careers. And you want to stick with the guys who are likely going to maintain good reputations after their careers. Because if they don't, I mean, you know, Pete Rose is an example, although that was partly, partially in his career, you know, the classic example nowadays would be the OJ Simpson. It went from superstar to complete dog. And, you know, Michael Vick, speaking of dog, Michael Vick's another one. Like some of, and, and you can't anticipate these guys doing stupid things um, or, or committing murder or being accused of committing murder, at least. So, you know, but I think my point is, you know, I would always advise somebody in the sports card hobby uh, in the investing hobby uh, within sports cards to look at the look at the blue chip players just like when you're investing in your stock portfolio your your RRSPs your um I forget what it's called right now in the US what's the what what's it called in the US not the RSA Roth IRA the yeah the Roth there and there's another another word for it too uh, but, but 401k 401k right the 401k the the, the Roth whatever you said, I can't remember right now, but yeah, whenever you're investing in your retirement funds, you know, you're know you often putting those funds into blue chip holdings that are gonna over time go up in value short, slowly but surely. And that will, I think will always happen with the, the great icons of the hobby, but they might even have the benefit of experiencing spikes along the way that spike up and then maybe settle down a bit and spike up and settle down a bit and so forth. So um, the problem is we can't hold these assets in our, uh, in Canada, at least we can't hold them in our RRSP, nor can we hold them in our TFSA, the tax-free savings account in the States. I'm not sure what the rules are, what you can put in your Roth or your IRA or your 401k. But, um, but, uh, you know, I think to wrap it up anyway, um, <clears throat> we do, we do borrow a lot of concepts from investing in, in, equities and stocks and all that and uh and it's interesting it keeps it fun because we do have real money tied up in these things all right um couple final comments uh austin says thoughts on buying boxes versus buying buying the desirable cards outright i'll, I'll take this one fellas um i mean <laughs> the price of boxes right now as an investment i don't know uh i i for me, I can tell you hands down, it's all about the cards. It's all about the cards themselves because I know what I'm getting. You don't know what you're getting with the unopened product, except that it's unopened product. And you have to hope and pray that the players within that, that are potentially in those boxes are going to maintain, shoot up in value and become uh, something down the road where that unopened product will be valuable. And let's, I'm not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. There is tons of unopened product that is worth a lot of money. 90s basketball, 
all the vintage unopened packs, very, very valuable. You know, especially if, if you're looking at a pack of Michael Jordan Fleer, 86 Fleer, 79 Opeachy Hockey. These, you know, even the, the um, 80, 81 uh, Tops Basketball with the Jordan, with the uh, Larry Bird Magic Johnson rookie card. I mean, and then go back further. Early 70s, the values start to just escalate in price in a major way. And then if you're talking 50s and 60s packs, I mean, you could be talking $15,000 for an unopened pack of 1952 tops single card uh, baseball, the, the one cent pack. So really, uh, for me, Austin, the cards. I buy the singles. Billy says, this is why I love this show. Thanks, Billy. I'm an accounting major and a collector. Bringing on two guys with actual investing experience is much more interesting than sneaker kids talking about gains on Twitter. Well, I'm glad we can provide you tonight with this alternative source of entertainment. Barry, Tim and Sean, you both have baseball jerseys on. What baseball stuff do you collect? Let's start with Sean. Um, recently, I've um, tried to focus a little more on the blue chip. Also, um, I'm I myself am caught up in the '90s uh, nostalgia hype. So I'm I'm I've been I've been buying Maguire, Sosa, Bonds, Clemens, Bagwell, Chipper Jones uh, singles from popular sets like Topps Chrome and early Topps Finest. Um, and I'm seeing great gains doing that. And, and you're really, you're following the ba the basketball lead. So I think what, what you just did there, Sean, you know, swinging back to er at the beginning of the show tonight, where we were, um, we were talking about looking for opportunities and, and realizing that, that just because we just saw a big run up on, on cards across the board, it doesn't mean that there's no more opportunities left. You've managed to find one, graciously share it with our audience tonight and with myself and Tim. Um, and so, you know, uh, awesome. Thank you for that. And, and interesting, but you also, also collected, as you mentioned to me, uh, earlier or, or yesterday, uh, the tops baseball sets going back to like 1954, right? Right. Speak to the sets you own to this day, and then we'll go to Tim. Okay, well, to the sets that I own, actually, I, I, I'm not experiencing fantastic gains. Um, um, in when, March, let, let's just let's just okay. get into what you actually have versus okay. the values. Okay. Just, so, just, uh, just, yeah, Barry just wants to know what kind of collection you have. Okay, so it's uh, uh, in the case of baseball, it's a, it's a run of top sets and near sets from 56 uh to current um unfortunately for me i i i somehow for whatever reason skipped the 2011 tops update which oh, is going to be one of the you know it's 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 going to be a, a regret and causes fomo for everyone yeah um, that that set is the 2011 tops update set is worth more than a 1970 <laughs> near mint set right now yeah. and it will be probably forever what about hockey? I think you mentioned you have some hockey sets too. Yeah. So, so again, uh, so 54 tops going uh, higher and uh, up to current. And cool. there I am seeing some gains because that means I've got all the Ovechkin rookies and the Crosby rookies and they've, they've done well. Yeah. How about you? I, I do want to say oh. that a few things haven't benefited from the run up and that's a lot of the 1960s commons in baseball. They're still sitting very cheap. A lot of 1970s stuff didn't move up, but we are seeing some life in the mid 80s and 90s, especially yeah. 
uh, Ken Griffey's '89 Upper Deck. Of course, and I think that's because the I think that's because the people who remember those players playing are now in a better position to spend money on them. Whereas the commons of the '50s and '60s and '70s, a lot of people now, unless you're chasing sets, are like, "Why would I bother?" I know that's my position. I, I commons it doesn't interest me unless I I already have a buyer lined up, which I'm just not willing to put out the effort uh, on that. I will spend my time elsewhere and on other cards. Tim, let's get a rundown. I mean, I think I think I certainly know what you collect. I I I even and I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here with Tim. I'm gonna say that about probably close to ten years ago now, I was set up at the expo and I had some of my personal collection on display, uh, particularly the one of one emblems from in the game's ultimate memorabilia. And Tim came by my booth, and I remember Tim. Uh, you and I didn't know you at the time. You stood there and you you gazed into that one showcase of mine for like a good half hour, calling friends over. You know, you got here walking away, coming back with a buddy and gazing back at it. Anyway, with that, why don't you tell us what you're collecting? And I apologize for the drool that I left on your case top. That you had to wipe off after, but uh, <laughs> that was impressive. So yeah, you, you hit you hit it dead on. Uh, I I collect patches in baseball and hockey. There's one now. Thanks for asking. That's Paul Molitor. So I collect Blue Jays, but vintage Blue Jays, not the current ones. Uh, I, I love uh, cut autographs. There's Mel Lott from uh, Pearl, Steve Pearl with Bill Terry. Nice. Um, all the dead cuts like uh, Richie collects. Uh, I got a slew of those. One of my favorite things I collect are um, Topps Auto Proofs. And what those are, those are buyback vintage cards that Topps bought. Reposition them in 2000, 2000, or 2001, 2002, Tops Archives and Tops Heritage. They're numbered to 100, but they only put in two to three of each player. And uh, I've got about 120 of those, but they're beautiful cards. Like if I can have a vintage card, I love having a, a certified autograph on it. Very cool. Um, I've got some game used jerseys. I've got some game used Blue Jays jerseys, um, including a Jose Bautista, um, Jackie Robinson Day jersey. Uh, I've got some game used bats I keep in my office. Um, Oh, what else? Uh, that's that's what's coming to mind. But again, it's the big patches. Uh, I just love the stuff you can look and feel and say that was in a game. That guy wore that, so you could smell the sweat. <laughs> yeah, and you you've acquired some really nice pieces from uh, Doctor Brian Price's President's Choice collection. I know you've got that Johnny or the Jerry Cheever's belt Jerry buckle Ch piece, and yeah, Tim's yeah. Hat. And you know, I really do recommend you all go check him out on Instagram. There's there it is on the ticker right now at Chili Cards. He's shown off some cards that are that were only available to the public for like half an hour before he scooped in and, and snagged them up for himself, making a lot I'll of show, people quite envious. I'll show you one that never made it to the public. So uh, I happen, so Dr. Price's booth is the first one I go to at the expo. So I just bolt right over there and just see what he's in there. Noted, two years ago, he noted, had a display. Noted that it's not my booth, noted. Yeah, well, it's your second, <laughs> but a loving second. So you only get half the drool. Um, so, uh, I, I went over there two years ago and I'm looking through his cabinet and he's still got brand new stuff in there. So it's beautiful patches. And I look at one card and I thought, I couldn't even figure out what it was. And then he said, oh yeah, yeah, I just created this. It's the only one of a kind. Um, and I'll show you what it is and I'll tell you what it actually is. So this is a lumber graph of Wayne Gretzky, but it's not just a lumber graph. This is a, a stick from his very last game. Oh, so it's one of the, so he identified the stick right on the card. So it's a one of one Gretzky's last game stick, the autograph from the blade of the stick. What? And I thought, holy cow. And first of all, if you've seen Gretzky autographs, they've gotten, you know, 
less fancy over the last 15 years. They're barely legible compared to 20 years ago. But he did he did the full Gretzky autograph on that. Wow. And uh, I I saw it and I thought, you know what, that's an iconic card. Yes. Um, I don't collect Gretzky. Like I don't typically do. I think he's phenomenal. I love him, but um, I, I find that Gretzky cards for me are are already fully valued. And when I usually buy cards, I like to think that there's some growth in there at some point. Um, but that one, I just said, you know, here's my wallet. Take out what you want and just give whatever's left back to me in the card and I'm happy. Are you, uh, I ask this sometimes, but no pressure. Are you willing to tell us what you paid for that card? Uh, I will. <laughs> he gave me a discount. So this was 800 Canadian. Okay. I mean, hey, what I love about that card, number one, the price sounds very fair for what it is. It is the autograph stick blade from the last game Gretzky ever played. There's only one of those out there. Uh, there can never be another one. That stick is now in pieces and you got the best part. Congratulations. Beautiful card. Love it. Um, okay. Back to comments. Richard, very good discussion tonight. Definitely topics you can't learn from a textbook. Awesome. Thanks all for sharing your insights. So thank you to both Sean and Tim for your insights, all your comments tonight. Austin, what are your thoughts on hockey possibly starting up again in the summer? It's They're saying it's going to happen. They're saying it's going to happen, Austin. That's what I'm hearing on the radio here locally. Uh, Billy, that's a steal. If it were an upper deck product, it would be on eBay for 5000 Buy it now, <laughs> at least, right? I mean, it's like a property ofs are going from, yeah. or they're asking more than five grand for property ofs, and they're not even from his last game, and they're not autographed. They're just the name off the stick. Um, awesome. Al, who's been here. Hey, Al, a very interesting and enjoyable show, gentlemen. Thanks for your input. Al is you thread the Viking on uh, Hobby Insider, if you're anyone's unaware. All right, guys. Um, listen, very interesting discussion. Um, yeah, I mean, it's we're, we're at the two hour, five minute mark. Sean, anything you want to add? Do you have a card or two? Uh, Tim squeezed in a few of his. Do you have anything handy you want to show uh, prized from your collection? If not, we will just say our goodbyes and uh, roll on to next to the next Wednesday show. No, not today, so I, I this has been a real pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining, Tim. Um, awesome stuff. Thank you for joining. Um, I'm going to give you guys a hand on behalf of the audience and, and myself. I do appreciate you both joining on very last minute notice. So before we just stop the show, I'll just remind everybody, um, you know, don't, don't forget virtual card expo, June 19th and 20th sportcardexpo.com. I'll put that at the bottom of the screen right now. That's it right there. Uh, coming up this Wednesday on sports cards live, it's either going to be Ken Reed, who is the co-anchor on Sportsnet up in Canada, national sports show, or it's going to be Steve Grad, who is the lead authenticator for Beckett Authentication Services and has been on over well over 100 episodes of Pawn Stars by now. Um, and then also, uh, don't forget Center Ice Cardcast, the new hockey card-centric podcast on all platforms, including YouTube. Check those guys out. They did a great review on the virtual card show. The, that I believe that episode just dropped like this morning. So check that out. And um, yeah, thanks everybody for watching. Thanks to the guests, everybody. Have a great uh, rest of the weekend. Oh, and one last thing. I always do this. Um, follow Tim again on Instagram at Chili Cards. Right there at Chili Cards. You can follow me under, or at Lee underscore cards. And I do have a, um, an, a Twitter account now for the show, Sports Cards LIV1. Sports Cards Live was taken, so they just gave it to me with a one instead of the E on the back. And last trickling in comments, 
thank you. Thank you guys for watching. Thanks, everybody. We will see you again next Wednesday. Good night.